This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. So hello, good morning, and welcome to a new episode of Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord, your host. Hello, this is Ellie. This is Simon. Hey, this is Stacy. And this is Tom. And we have a guest joining us through Skype internationally today. Simon, why don't you introduce your friend? Yes, indeed. Uh, we have a very distinguished gentleman. His legend looms large in the figure skating world. Um, and uh, no, seriously, we're very, very happy and honoured to have a guest from the UK, uh, Peter Jones from uh, the band Tiger Moth Tales, and also uh, the keyboard player in the current lineup of Camel um, is joining us uh, via Skype today because. Uh, Jonesy, you're a, you're a big Genesis fan, aren't you? I am indeed, and uh, I must say it's, it's a great privilege to be the only other guest, I think, apart from Steve Hackett on your show. Is, is that right? <laughs> That's correct, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. Uh, but, I mean, obviously I'm connected. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been into Genesis. I mean, I was into Phil Collins first as, as an impressionable uh, um, seven or eight-year-old or whatever uh, back in... 1988 when Two Hearts and you know Buster was coming out and all the rest, but seriously and all that stuff. And then I remember, I'll try and keep this short, but I remember one day hearing uh, That's All, which I'd always thought was Phil Collins, and I said to a friend of mine, uh, oh, that's Phil Collins. And he went, no, it's not, it's Genesis. And I went, no, it's Phil Collins. No, it's Genesis. No, it's Phil Collins. No, it's Genesis. And this went on for some time until I realised that Phil Collins was in Genesis, and then I had to have more Genesis to get more Phil, and then this Peter Gabriel bloke turned up, and I wasn't sure what was going on then. <laughs> but um, but somehow, you know, it penetrated to my, uh, well, by that time, about 10-year-old 10 10 year mind. And, um, yeah, I've never looked back since. You're going to get on very well with Stacey, because that's almost an identical story to Stacey's um, introduction to Genesis. Uh, yeah, uh. absolutely. So we're happy to have Peter with us today. We're going to talk about the album Duke. And so, Simon, we will start traditionally, as we always do, with the Wikipedia entry. The Wikipedia entry is actually quite short. It just says, Duke, fucking awesome. <laughs> that really is all it needs to say. Right. So. Well, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So thanks very much for tuning in, everybody. But, uh, you know, I will read out. This is what uh, Wiki has to say about Duke. Duke is the 10th studio album by English rock band Genesis, released in March of 1980 on Charisma Records. It was the first album by the group to reach number one in the UK. Now this, I, I didn't know that actually, and features the singles Turn It On Again, Duchess and Misunderstanding. The album followed a period of inactivity for the band in early 1979. Phil Collins moved to Vancouver, Canada in an effort to save his failing first marriage, while Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford recorded solo albums. Collins returned to the UK after his marriage ended and wrote a significant amount of material, some of which was used on Duke, and some was later reworked for his first solo album, Face Value. Duke contained a mix of individually written songs and tracks that evolved from jam sessions in mid-1979, while recording took place at the end of the year. The break in activity rejuvenated the band, and they found the album an easy one to work on. 
The album contained the first use of a drum machine by Genesis on Duchess, and as well as the hit singles, included more experimental pieces such as the closing 10-minute Duke's Travels, Duke's End Suite. The album has since been certified platinum in both the UK and the US. Very good. So what are just general impressions of this album to start with? Well, I think you said, Simon, fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favourite Genesis album. It, It holds the number one spot for me. It's, if it's not my favorite, it's my favorite of the Phil years. I think I, I, when people say, what's your favorite Genesis album? I usually say, well, of the Phil years, it's Duke. And I haven't decided yet on the, on the Peter years. And maybe we haven't gotten to that album yet. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it your favorite album? I think. Don't don't, 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 don't wriggle out of an answer. No, no. I'm just curious. Because it's not my favorite album. It's absolutely... I mean, I love this album, but it's not like, oh, you know, like the, like the, the holy Phil era album, which yeah. I know a lot of fans feel that way. It's like Duke is this precious um, collection of songs. And like, I was really, I'm really nervous about talking about it because I get that sense I, from the, commu- the fan community. Like when they're talking about anything post... Gabriel and Hackett, yeah. it's like, well, Duke's the only thing worth right. listening to. It's the to. exception. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree with you, Stacey. Like, I don't think it's my favorite album. Well, you're wrong. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, because I think it lets me down in the middle a little bit with some of the, the side two solo songs. Um, but it's not, but it's really strong. Even with that, I think it's a very consistent album. Right. And... And it has some great highs on it. I mean, perhaps the highest of, of comparable to the rest of the three-man era. So it's, yeah, I, I don't, ask me on a different day and Duke might be my favorite album. And, you know, they change a lot. So it's hard to really na- narrow it down and say, this is my favorite X album. This album is very, to me, it's very bright and shiny. Yeah. Yet it's like their most... Um, their saddest album. Hmm. So it's it's very like contradictory to me in some okay. ways. Um, you know, it's very adult. This is their first, you know, they put on their big boy pants <laughs> with this album. Right. Like it's very When they were serious. 29. Yeah, so but they're like yeah. their hand, they're 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 addressing some very serious adult issues where, yeah. you know, up until and then there were three, there's a lot more of the fantasy world right. kind of creeping in, you know, in a, in a very in a passive way, of course, yeah. but it was more external. Um, external. And here internal. is like, oh my goodness, like these boys are all grown up, right. you know? Um, and the one other thing I want to say about this album overall is two things, just more the sound of it. One, yeah. when we l- listened, Simon and I listened to this last week, it just finally hit me. There's so many symbols in this. And I'm wondering <laughs> if this is Phil's way of like kind of, you know, releasing all the symbol repression he had recording Peter Gabriel's third right. album because exactly. <laughs> he wasn't allowed to use symbols and he's just like, symbol, symbol, symbol. I'll show you what I Yeah. And, and Peter, forgive me, but I am not a fan of Tony's keyboard sounds in this album very really? much. Okay. In, in comparison to other albums, okay. the sounds he's using, I'm no. just... See, I'm, 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 I'm completely the opposite. I actually uh, think this is some of the best keyboard sounds. He was like... Moving on as a sound designer, and this was the transitional album, and I, I personally believe he came out as a, a different kind of keyboard player by the time they reached the Genesis album, Genesis so is, Shapes. Is this because, you know, the transition from the 70s to the 80s with the technological I, things available? I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I can't be absolutely sure. I mean, what do you think, Peter? 
Well, I, I think uh, it, it relies a lot less on uh, effects such as uh, then there were three. Like, like you say, there's a lot, lot less uh, swirliness. It's a lot more direct in your face. And, and I, I'm, I was going to go on to that later, but I, but I, I hate the remaster because it just squashes it. But then don't get me started on remasters. <laughs> but so, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I mean, for me, it's it's very difficult to detach. Um, artistic reasons from sort of sentimental reasons and it's probably futile uh, to do so but but i mean it, for a long time it was my favorite album uh and if you ask me some days it probably still is and that's because it was a particular time in my life and i, I was in crete at the, at, at the time and i had a walkman with me back in the days of cassettes and uh i think i listened to that album about three times a day for about two weeks <laughs> <laughs> so i just absorbed it totally and um it has a great place in my heart and I actually think that uh, as far as the Gabriel and Collins debate goes which again is a pretty pointless <laughs> exercise but to me Duke has everything it has still bona fide prog epics I mean uh, cul-de-sac obviously which you get to um, in, in a bit and uh, 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 travels and all the rest of it and it has all that bona fide prog stuff which, which some of which could have been written with Gabriel I think you know could have been could have translated, and um, and then it has pop, uh, uh, you know, pop gems as well. So I, it has everything for me, and it and it's just in that middle point. I mean, Abacab, then there was a definite switch. Yeah, Duke was the kind of middle point, and for that, uh, I think there's just something for everybody on it, and and it, it you know, and therefore it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. So to yeah. to uh, to employ a Blues Brothers like analogy. It has um, country and western. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. We've talked about, and then there were three being a transitional album, and this is almost with with that being the start of a transition. Duke is almost the middle of the transition, and Abacab is the end of the transition. That's a good way yeah. of describing it. Yeah, and it's uh, because transitions are rarely just one album or one thing. Mm. This was a you know. Three-year process from seventy-eight to eighty-one of this band saying, "Okay, we we know what we're good at. We want to keep certain aspects of what we're good at, but also evolve so that we keep ourselves interested in this as we're moving okay. forward, and we can keep doing bringing to Genesis what we like about it—the group writing—and kind of put the the solo writing off to the side for their different projects." Well, some some of my favourite Genesis albums are. I mean, I always thought of it as the ones where they had personnel changes, but I suppose it's more like what you just said that the transitional albums, such as Nursery Crimes, uh, uh, then there were three, and it and it's because I don't know there's something that wasn't there before, or rather they're they're not relying on what they had before that they've they've had to do something new and and change things around, and it, it kind of shows in the music. So. Duke, I guess, not so much as then there were three, because, as you say, that's kind of midway through the transition, but but there's definitely an element of, of that there. For me, the, the reason it's one of my favorites is I think it's just the complete package. Uh, it's like a work. It's like when you listen to it, because maybe it's bookended by similar themes, and it, it's just, and, and the artwork, every everything just makes it so positive, and it, from the opening track, it just grabs you and keeps you all the way through. It's got some of the strongest group compositions, it's got some of the best writing, I think, by individual members in the group. Some of Mike's strongest stuff, some of Tony's, some of Phil's. And I think it just came at a great time because... And then there were three. They, they were just getting used to that fact that it was just the three of them. So they, you know, they, I think we even talked about that, how there was... And when we talked about that album, how there was some great moments, but 
there was like a it was just an even I think that yeah. was that was yeah. the one thing whereas here there's they've gone off Phil uh, Phil has been writing stuff Tony and Mike both had their solo albums they needed that kind of break and when they came back together it was like they were just totally re-energized and I think it just shows throughout this whole album it's just a, it's just a great album when I was listening to it I'm like I'm almost air drumming to every song and <laughs> it feels like oh, yeah. the, the recording of it the sound is just the drums sound great. It's like a, you're listening to a live album. Yeah. Well, when I was in when I was in Crete, uh, stuck with my Walkman, I, I was air keyboarding. It's one of my favorite albums of Phil's era, and uh, but again, that may change. But it's again the drumming, you know, the singing, the bass lines. Now the keyboards are not my favorite in this album. Heretic. We'll talk Sorry. about this in detail, yeah, I think. Okay. But, right. So I will say that, you know, on Twitter and Facebook, we've gotten a lot of responses and on the website also about when we said that Duke is the next podcast, next album that we're focusing on. Uh, even just this morning, uh, Al Melchior writes in, say good things about Heat Haze. Uh, so I will certainly do this. Uh, uh, Frosty says, Duke is my favorite Genesis album by a distance from the other mid-period pre-pop ones. Um a lot of people have really said positive things about, oh, we're really looking forward to hearing about Duke because, you know, it's it's an album that is close to a lot of people's hearts. So we hope we do it well for everybody out there. So something which appeals to my immature sense of humor is, isn't, isn't, America, isn't uh, Duke an American word for poo? <laughs> uh, it's more like it can be. But it's more like dookie, too. Like, if yeah. you, like I say, a dookie. Um, and, we, and we've really raised the level of the room, I think, by bringing that up. So, <laughs> so, so with, with that, I think we'll move on to the first track of the album, Behind the Lines. I think it's, well, as we just mentioned before about the transition, and I think it's the first album, really, where you could say that the feel is more important than the, than the notes. And I know that yeah. like, the band have explained this, particularly talking about Abacab, it's not so much a case of getting the notes right, it's getting the feeling right, because it's a lot more simpler. And it's, it, it sounds like a jam, but obviously it wasn't. And it, um, 
I, I think you know, but with that with that thing in mind, with the feeling being more important than than the music or more important than the notes, uh, I guess for some of the more hardline uh, prog fans or the Gabriel fans, that's that's where the rock probably set in. <laughs> yeah, but, but to it's me, a, to me, it's, it's a fantastic opener which yeah, leads it's into. A bit... My my comment about it was, you know, great opener or the greatest opener of an album. Oh, Stacy's shaking her head. <laughs> no, it's a great opener. It's not the greatest. Okay. Yeah. I still maintain 11th Earl Mars, the greatest. Yeah. yeah. That, is, that is very solid, yeah. too. Sorry. Well, all, all I can say is when I went to see them in, in Manchester on the Live Over Europe tour, which was obviously perhaps not the finest tour in the world, but... But um, but when they started with that, I actually I actually cried. You know? Oh, <laughs> I did too. <laughs> it's a great concert opener because again, it it just has that energy and drive that's like we are here. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned, and this is one of the things you've mentioned uh, on more than one occasion in past episodes, Mike, is that they are the band are incredibly good at. Uh, handshaking with the listener with the first track yeah. they come out of the gates with with a with normally with a real belter yeah. um, and i genuinely do believe that this is the greatest opening of any genesis album there you go um i i think that it it has just about every element you possibly can now we watched mm-hmm. last night before the recording the um the remaster uh, series where they do the interviews for right. each album and if I remember correctly, Tony Banks said that this was one of the few pieces that he actually, the riff, uh, the opening riff was, he actually brought this to the table. Yeah. And they jammed on it at, at Phil's house, didn't yeah. they? He said that they had this, this chord, he had this chord progression that really didn't have any development to it. And that it just kind of went around in a circle, you know, the way that it, that it does. And the band then added to it and made more it more detailed and had this energy to it and Phil's drumming. And then it really develops throughout the entire song where it's the same progression, but it's, you know, a bit more funky in the middle with, you know, Mike's bass and, you know, it being laid back in the vocal section. That was just what I was going to say. I was going to mention that um, it it seems like on this album, this is the first time when when Mike Rutherford, uh, you know, gets his freak on, you know, (laughs) I think he's going to start slapping any minute, you know what I mean? (laughs) I actually wrote down... This is when Rutherford's guitar balls dropped. Yeah, yeah. Like this is he 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 was getting you know I feel like he was just getting comfortable as, as a lead guitarist yeah. on Then Then We're Three, and you know that was a warm up for him. And yeah. here he just especially the first track it's yeah. fantastic, and I love the the solo in this yeah. and his playing throughout the whole album. But I think with behind the lines it's it's uh, he sounds really like a real a real lead guitarist. Yeah, absolutely. And that's you know really positive. It's a good influence on this album. I, def- I definitely also, to join the crowd of best album openers, I had that on my list. It's just out of the gate, it grabs you. And I, c- I can imagine what it must have been like as a Genesis fan to buy this album in the store and come down, be- go back to your house and put it on the record player and the headphones and just have it blare in your ears right from the beginning. And it's it's got one of those kind of proggy openers where this was now kind of into the 80s and the hits, but they start off with a song with a two and a half minute instrumental bit which i kind of like that in prog songs i it kind of does that for me when you have a song with like a a song length instrumental opener and that's just the beginning of the song right like and serves as the overture of the album it's the overture i like close to the edge uh gates of delirium like songs which have this long opener it is kind of like an overture Mm -hmm. and i can picture it kind of like the opening overture of like a, of a show and all of a sudden when it 
you know, bam, it starts going into the, like the song, like the curtain rises, and then that's when like the album is kind of like a presentation. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, to me, it's, it's a, a great opener, not the greatest of the, of the albums. Like Stacy, oh. I can agree with you. Ellie, I'm feeling you today. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I, mean, I love the drums, drums, you know, the bass line. It's amazing. And uh, and then the transition into the next song, which, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's 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 a, in a live setting, I think it's a great uh, show oh, yeah. opener. That's mm-hmm. in the 2007 mm-hmm. uh, tour. I, think, I thought that was amazing the, to open the show with that piece. So, but yeah. The, uh, to go back to um, to what uh, Peter and and Stacey were talking about about the sort of like the funky element, it's not lost on me that uh, as a result of this, we we had a little side poll on on um, on Twitter about the Phil Collins version, which is a lot funkier. Yeah, you know, sure. I mean, it's, there's that Motown vibe about it. Um, do we want to discuss at all of the the uh, the results of that that little straw poll that you put together? Yeah. So yesterday I just threw out on Twitter um, a poll asking which version of Behind the Lines is better, and 85% chose the Duke version, <laughs> and 15%, which I think is actually high. <laughs> I think it's too high. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chose the, the face value Phil Collins version. Now, I would have chosen, as you know, if you listen to our face value podcast, the Phil Collins version. Um, so I would like to give that 16% <laughs> as a final vote because I can't vote in my own poll for some reason. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and I I love, I, I think it's because I heard that version first. Sure. I know I said that before. So that stuck with me. So when I first got Duke, which was kind of in the middle of my I got to have everything Genesis yeah. when I discovered them, phase so I don't really have like a moment where I remember getting Duke and like it coming I think I probably bought it amongst like a couple other their albums and I just remember putting it on I'm like what's wrong is my my CD player broken like it's so slow it was over 10 years of you know being in love with the Phil version it yeah. was really hard to uh to, to hear it. but hearing live versions like the Lyceum show um, and various bootlegs mm-hmm. and just seeing it live in 2007 it's really made me come around and see the light <laughs> so I appreciate you know I love the the uh, the, the Genesis version a lot uh, more but still you know the yeah. for sentimental reasons because as Peter mentioned there's a sentimental yeah. and then there's you know kind of your music yeah. head your first love was yeah the in, 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 in you know appreciating music um, it's always going to be the Phil version is my favorite I'm really trying to remember which one I heard first. Uh, I think there must have been quite a similar time. I mean, it's hard to say because obviously the, the, the Phil version doesn't have the intro and, and the, the build-up. It just starts with the stab, you know. Um, as a song, I kind of, I think I prefer the Phil version, but as, as a sort of uh, overture for the Genesis version. But what I was going to say was, um, uh, a bringer of useless information, you, you, uh, you referenced the Phil's uh, Oh Lord um, <laughs> uh, and, and obviously not in the not in the album version, but in the live version, would that be the second use of Oh Lord on a Genesis album? Well, the the first was Blood on the Rooftops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I can only stay if you there will to keep me here. Oh Lord, <laughs> <laughs> that works. That that's actually a good segue into the lyrics of this song because. 
it, sometimes I, you know, you, you hear something so often, and then you're like, what is this song actually about? God knows. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, well, my interpretation is that it's somebody standing kind of at backstage at a show or outside the stage door, like, waiting to kind of interact with their hero or heroine. If oh, interact like with Duchess? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, I held the book so tightly in my hand. I almost think it's not explicit, but that feels like an autograph book to me. I saw your picture, heard you call my name, you know, it's it's that fan who's looking for the connection is, is my interpretation of this. I, th I, th I think I'd always thought of it as just being a good old love song of, a, of, a, of a, some kind of relationship breakup. But when, when, I, when I think about it, I've no idea what the reference to the book means right. and, and all the rest of it. So, so your, yours sounds more plausible. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, it, this is, these are not explicit lyrics in any way, like about a story. So it is kind of general, but I, I kind of just knowing about kind of how the Duke suite is was uh, kind of performed live, it makes it feel like that it was that this character Duke was connected to fandom in a certain way. Yeah. And again, it's not explicit, but it's it's what I feel is you know it makes sense to me in a weird. I mean, as far as I, as far as I know, this isn't a concept album, is it? But the Duke suite was like the the tracks of Behind the Lines, Duchess Guide Vocal, Turn It On Again, and then Duke's Travels, Duke's End. So yeah. that was a piece. I suppose there's a there's a theme running yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, through it, but maybe not a concept. Right. If, if you couldn't, if you just looked at it musically, and if you couldn't, if you if you weren't English and you didn't get the lyrics or or whatever, you would you'd think musically it was a concept album because of all the reoccurring themes and just how it. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Isn't it? The the other thing that I was going to say, if we could just uh, return maybe to the music, is behind the lines is the track that i always associate with double drums this is the track that i always associate with phil and chester <laughs> oh, yeah. behind yeah. the drums doing their stuff and i think it's because i always associate this track as being a set opener well this was one of the tracks where when they announced the 2007 tour and we just started speculating about what tracks are going to play my thing was they should open up with behind the lines yes yeah, i agree yeah and my regret about that tour was i mean we tried to have no spoilers like we wanted yeah. to go into this to the fact where the first show in toronto we had our hands over our ears because people were talking about the songs behind <laughs> us and for some reason and because they had played a short set at that like peace earth or, or earth live earth, earth, live earth. earth yeah. i knew i knew behind the lines opened the set and I have a feeling that had i not known that and they opened with that i would have been like you peter and i would probably would have been crying yeah. It's great. Yeah. Ellie found a, um, talking about the lyrics on allmusic.com, there was a review talking about Duke in general, and it talks about behind the lines, and it says, The lyrics depict a man captivated by his book, unable to tell the difference between the story and his reality. The book will be replaced by a television and turn it on again. Uh, you know, I, I again, I don't know if where that person is that, got is that, that line. To the to the yeah. Albert story. That's, yeah, uh, I guess. Yeah, the story of Albert. But uh, but I don't. You know, again, you read. This is like us just kind of talking about. Oh, this yeah. is what the song is about. I don't know if yeah, that's an interpretation not from somebody. Yeah, that's not cited by Tony Banks. Said this in an yeah, interview, yeah, yeah. or Mike Rutherford <laughs> said this. You know, it's and as, as we all know, uh, as we all know, family family snapshot is about the Kennedy assassination, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so it it is that type of thing that's like, oh, you know, what is this about? It, it is partially people's interpretation. I think that interpretation makes sense. But I also think, you know, in the concept of, you know, the 
the Duke and Duchess type of idea. You know, any idea can make sense in that, and that's the joy of music. So. Yeah, because you can interpret it through the filter of your own life. Right. right. And the reason that I think that it also makes a great opener is because of that opening line. It's one of the few, if the only times, when a song starts out with an I yeah. statement. Mm-hmm. I held the books. It's it's declarative right away. It's like this guy, you're hearing this person tell their tale right from the beginning. Yeah. And it's just a, just a strong opening line, not just, you know, following a strong opening instrumental part. I never ever picked up on on the kind of third person bit of Genesis you know, until until you pointed it out. I think in one of the recent shows, I was like, I never realized that. And there's there's a lot of great lines in this song. Like uh, for me, the the line that always kills me in this is, you know, it's getting stronger. So grab my hand. I don't want to like. There's this like come along with me on this trip, and it just feels very inviting in that way. And it's it's Energy. really works. Yeah. And another thing about the lyrics, which is kind of strange it's they're not really rhyming lyrics like a lot of the songs yeah you know they try to you know do like a b c b or a b a b or something this is is not so right. which is really interesting and it's it's a departure because sometimes i think your brain it, it hears a little bit of something different because you're so used to everything being sing song and rhyming whereas this doesn't have that who wrote the lyrics just out of interest I think it was Phil, but I'm not 100... It's either Phil or Tony, but I'm not 100% sure either way. So. Again, going, going back to the Phil Genesis version, I prefer the Genesis version. Again, I, I don't remember which one I heard first, but for some reason I prefer the Genesis version. Yeah. It's more rocky, more It's energetic. got more balls. I mean, we, I think <laughs> yeah. we talked about this. That I think that the, um, the, the Phil version is lighter on its feet yeah. uh, and, and it's got a lot more sort of like push to it. Mm-hmm. But there's just something sort of like inexorable about mm-hmm. about this track, the Genesis version. It's sort of like yeah. bursting through a wall, of, you know, out the other side and saying, hello, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And now we're going to move forward into Duchess. Thank you. 
Duchess is one of those tracks that, for me, you know, that slow build of the drum machine and the instrumental kind of leading into this, it just, again, it, it sets the stage after Behind the Lines, clears the deck, and you don't know what's going to come after it. No. And it's fantastic what does. <laughs> the thing that really gets me about it is it is actually quite a ghostly transition from... Yeah. from uh, from behind the lines into this, it is quite possibly one of the better transitions actually they've ever done on yeah. record. And it harkens back to the older days when they would connect songs and kind of have that more, I guess, progressive feeling where it's not just song, song, song. Right. Like people are probably thinking this is how they ended songs like on Wind and Mothering, where they connected a couple pieces. And I think it was a kind of return to form in a way, even. With more modern sound, though. Right, with transitions building in there. This is one of those pieces that, you know, again, talking about the intro, that I'm always amazed that they can recreate it live. Mm. Because for me, it's just rem remembering which bits come after which bits in this drum machine intro, that there's keyboards, there's guitar running through it. You know, it's very... It's, it feels very loose, but yet they recreate it each night when they were playing it on tour on Duke and Abacab. Yeah, because he actually had a CR-78 on stage and he would do all of the business. Yeah. I mean, I think it, this, it, it appears in the Lyceum yes, show, yes. the Lyceum DVD, and, um, doesn't it? Three Sides Live also, you can see him kind of playing with this a bit. So it's it's really fun. Yeah, for me too. I like the transition from Behind the Lines to Duchess. It's like a bit of a mystery. Again, you don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, yeah, the song is intense. You know, it's very dramatic and the metallic sound. I, I love it. Right. And I know Stacy has a rule about drum machine intros. Does this is this the exception that proves the rule? It's or? an exception because what is, what is your issue then? Yeah, what is my rule again? No, I think I think you, you never want you never want a drum machine intro to be as long as a song. Oh yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you don't just just get to the point. Like I I'm, I'm not a fan of these like you know ethereal kind of intros that go on forever. I'm yeah. like I usually will skip if it's on my iPod. Like if if you don't kick in after a certain amount of time. Um, but this is, I, I think this, this and Mama are the best uses of drum machine that Genesis yes. ever done. Yeah. And I, what I love about this track is, as you guys were talking about, that slow build up, and then it just kind of, when the acoustic drums kick in yes. and knock you on your ass, it's fantastic. And, and I love how it kind of winds down at the end. It's almost like it parallels the rise and fall yeah. of, of this duchess um performer or right. entertainer you know in a way so it parallels the lyrics which i love and it's it's that's what genesis does very well is that dramatic you know taking you through you know um a slice of life or mm -hmm. on a journey and they do it so well and this to me is one of their best songs ever yeah. you know i know tony banks has said in multiple mm -hmm. interviews it's one of his favorites it's also one of mine I mean, it's one of the reasons yeah. why it's included in our theme tune yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is gorgeous i mean you have to play it at you gotta turn it up to 11 yeah. i mean it's one of those things when it when this comes on whether it's being shuffled or we're listening to the album at mm -hmm. home it goes all the way up yeah, yeah. neighbors be damned it's right. going up <laughs> and musically like Again, I, I'm a very, very amateur bass player from back in the day and everything, and so I liked listening to this music, and I don't know how they came up with this. Like, it's just so, like, in the verses and in the actual vocal piece, pieces, it's like, it's so, it's such a simple, straightforward idea, but the way they dress it up, and when you see video of them 
playing it, like Mike is doing this tapping on guitar during the verses. There's some sort of, especially later in the vocal piece, there's this vocoder part running through it that I assume Tony's doing. I have no idea what's being said, but it just adds this feel to it that's that's crazy on some level. But it's it's a fantastic song, and, and it's, it's wonderful. Peter, what do you have uh, about Duchess? What do you think about this track? Well, I sent it on the drum machine, as, as we all seem to, to have done, and, and Michael and Tony and Phil all, all tended to use this as a, as a tool, and it's almost as if, uh, you know, as members of the band dropped out, <laughs> 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 the, 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 the drum machine was hired, you know, it's like, oh, we need, we need something to uh, keep the beat or whatever. It's quite surprising that Phil kind of embraces it so much in his own work, because drummers usually hate drum machines and it's spawn of Satan, but... What they re- recognise is that having something that repeats uh, constantly and identically, like like in the air tonight or any of the other kind of beats, when something repeats like that, it builds something. It's, it's almost like a it's like a warning signal in your head. You go, hold on, what's happening here? You know what I mean? It's like, no. <laughs> and and the good thing was that Genesis, because they kind of. You could other bands couldn't use the drum machine the way the Genesis did because it would be so obviously sounding like a Genesis track then. Yeah, they were first. Yeah, I mean and Genesis really knew how to use it too because I think with Phil being a drummer and being so strong or and getting stronger in the writing department, he was able to kind of make these drum patterns work within the structure of the song. And even he jokes about that you know the drum patterns that Mike would come in. With it's like oh the beat was on the wrong part of the of the bar but it works like with Mama he taught yeah about. I mean you can hear like with you know in hold on my heart and stuff like where the main thing is the is the drum machine but you can hear Phil doing these nice little things on the hi hats and, and it's like he's, he's playing with it you know what I mean and he's not he's not a threat or whatever like and when it does in in this track when it does build and, and burst into the the verse. You know, it's a, a very uh, powerful moment, and and it's a, a chorus line particularly. I, I always, you know, stuck in my head as a kid. You know, that was one of the um, things I remembered about it. So yeah, it's very very powerful. And I love I love how you know all the technical musical terms like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, little bit in the middle. Little bit in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> one of those One of the uh, things that I always remember about this track was I think it was in the. Uh, what was that show on VH1 behind the music? Yeah. When they did the Genesis special, and towards the end of it, Tony is talking about this song and about how it chronicles the rise and fall of a of a, a singer. And he goes, "I'd say right about right now, Genesis is in that third act." And I was like, <laughs> it just hits me in the gut every time. I was like, Tony, yeah. don't don't give up. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's just so sad when he says that. It's more and more relevant today with uh, so many people uh, shooting up overnight and then disappearing, you know, ne- next month, you know, it's, it's all this flavour of the month and stars being made in seconds and dropped in, you know, in days. <laughs> At some point he jokingly said, oh, we, we were thinking about calling Duchess a Madonna, but then right. we decided, you know, instead <laughs> right. we call it Duchess. <laughs> but I think, but listening to the track, you know, again, I think that, you know, I still remember first hearing this song and these lyrics, you know, it's, it's a very simple three-verse story. It's the the start, the success, and the fall. And, and it did, it, it packed an emotional punch. You know, when Phil does that line, when nobody cried for more. And, you know, it's, it's like this is so reflective of 
any career like that, that at the end, you know, it's it's the end. And I think that that was, you know, as Tony pointed out in that Behind the Music, you know, it's almost any career you can track that way. But it's it, you just hearing Phil's vocal delivery of this is what sells the song. Yes. The If I can bring up one negative thing about uh-oh. just, uh-oh. Blasphemy. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's not allowed. It's it's kind of got Tony's trademark awkward phrasing a little bit, where he's trying oh, in to the lyrics? in the oh, lyrics because yeah. there's that part. I mean, just some of the lines that Phil had to sing. You know, I, I give him credit. We're all but a few fall by the wayside on the grassier verge. It's a little strange, and it reminds me of other Tony songs where it has lyrics like, "Well, that's as maybe I don't know." Guaranteed to move you and turn your head when all's been said and done. The trees and I are shaken by the same wind, but whereas. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, you know, it's they're they're clunky in some ways, but Phil is able to sell these too. You know, it's and I think that's that's the Tony talked about this in the interview where Phil can really sell these lines in a way that makes them accessible. So, yeah. Well, he did play Oliver in the West End. So, yes. <laughs> well, he played the Artful Dodger, sorry, right. before people start writing in. He didn't play Oliver. He played... Don't shoot yourself. So with that, I think we're ready to move on to Guide Vocal. Guide vocals, spoiler alert, the lyrics show up later in the album, too. What? <laughs> Danger, warning. This is perhaps, and I haven't done a scientific test with this, but this may be the shortest vocal track in Genesis's history. I think this is our first, like, vocal interlude, or maybe only yeah, one, where yeah. it's, like, just a little short transition yeah. thing. Like, I don't think they've done that before. Four. Maybe some stuff on the lamb. Maybe oh, su- yeah. supernatural and the statistics. But that's a full But song. most of the transitions on the lamb that were short, like ravine oh, and things yeah. like that, are short. Uh, they were shorter than this. That's it's why really I was cool. thinking shorter, shortest vocal piece. Yeah. Well, there is the outtake, John. He's fucked off again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what are your? I mean, I'd be very interested to hear what your your thoughts are on this, uh, particularly uh, or most in particular because you've actually covered this song yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I covered it. Well, I, I, we did a, did some videos uh, with Rob Reed uh, when I was trying to uh, shamelessly plug my own material. And, and this is as, Rob Reed as, of Magenta, is that right? Ma- Ma- Magenta, yeah. 
and as we were lacking anything in the way of video footage for my own stuff and as my own stuff was about a bit difficult to play uh, so we, we, we just decided to, to do some Genesis covers and well it didn't really it didn't really decide us so I think I just I was just sat with Rob and I had a guitar and I started doing some stuff and he went he kind of said we got to, we got to film this we got to film this and guide vocals one one that we did and I don't know it's just one of the because, probably because it is so short as you just mentioned um, and it's like I thought well I'll just do it because it'll be over in a minute <laughs> if, if, if he likes it that's great if it doesn't then it doesn't but I find it to be one of, of a very emotional piece and something I can never understand is that some people I mean there's the Gabriel Collins comparison of course again uh, but some people just seem to say that Phil Collins has uh, you know, little emotion to his voice, and, and and I don't get that at all. And people say to me, um, "Wow, you put such emotion into the Genesis covers," and I say, "I'm just singing like Phil sings." You know, <laughs> right? It, it's um, there already. I I agree with you. Where I think that this this is a really emotional, short little piece. You know, especially his final, you know, take what's yours and be damned line, you know, that's, it's, there's a lot of feeling there. And again, I'm, I'm almost amazed that it's a Tony lyric because he's able, he's really able in a short period of, you know, just two verses to really put this out there. Well, we already kind of mentioned this bit in um, Duchess, but it's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me what Phil Collins can do with Tony's lyrics, because I'm not saying Tony's lyrics... Uh, are bad, but they they very frequently don't rhyme. Often, I can't quite work out what he's trying to say. And to to add to that, his the way he kind of goes from chord to chord, off into a totally different key every every five seconds. <laughs> and, and, and Phil just effortlessly brings that to your ears. I mean, if you stop and look at some of the lyrics, you think what? But when Phil sings, it, it's just like a a bomb. Right. Yeah, it it makes magic. it makes sense even if you don't quite know what they're saying. So yeah. I think that's that's what's wonderful about it. I think it, this is the unsung pivotal part of the album in a lot of mm. ways. This this mm. um, guide vocal is one of those those tracks which doesn't make a fuss uh, arriving, does what it does, and right. then leaves again without fully letting you know how subtly important it is to the entire album's meaning, I right. suppose, or at least feel. Right, because I remember the first time hearing this track, and maybe we should talk about this during Dude's Travels too, is that when those lyrics kick in during Dude's Travels, like, I think I was almost like, there's no lyrics during this thing, it's not on the album sheet or whatever, and it's like, what is he singing? I was like, oh, he's singing that track from before, you know, this sounds familiar, and it's just... It adds to that, it's that callback that elevates the music. It's that angel standing in the sun yeah. reprise like they did on uh, Trick yeah. of the Tail. Right, and even even in Supper's Ready itself, where those lyrics, you know, the hey babe with your darting eyes so blue, call back to the start of the song, and you're like, oh, it's this, it's this reflection, but it's a different feel to it than it was at the start. And I think that's, again, you know, they talked about they didn't do the dude suite on the album the way they did it live, because they didn't want those comparisons to Supper's Ready. And maybe, you know, I kind of realized exactly kind of how similar they were in some ways yeah, about yeah, that. So, and What yeah. made you choose uh, this track uh, to cover then, Peter? Well, uh, so partly, partly because of the shortness. I was, just, I was just going through short tracks such as More Fool Me and, uh, uh, and other 
things. I was, I was, just, I was just kind of vamping, really. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've played this before. Me and my friend, who's a big Genesis fan, we tend to get drunk uh, fairly, fairly frequently, and we end up sitting, we end up sitting around the piano and just, just playing stuff. And it's one I've played before, and I, I think just because of the emotional content, the way the chords go, uh, and it's weird because it. I mean, I mentioned that the, how the album. If you didn't know the lyrics, or if you couldn't understand the lyrics, you might think it was a a really strong concept album and those first three tracks that just going from one to the other which as far as I know have nothing to do with each other at all but musically they they slide into each other and it's like you think that there's been some great journey here and it and and it comes to a rather sort of um sad you know dark dark end and I've always found it a, a fascinating track the, the one word that I had for this track was it, it just felt vulnerable like Phil mm -hmm. sounds vulnerable yeah after this, you know, this opening of Behind the Lines and then, you know, goes into Duchess and all of a sudden then it kind of like a river, almost kind of like uh, Smetna's The Moldau. Anyone no. know classical music? <laughs> where, where it's what are you talking about, mate? <laughs> <laughs> it's like all this, these like orchestras and violins, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, where it's like there's this tumultuous river and all of a sudden it's coming to a, a, an end into like a, a, a quiet stream and that's kind of like these three songs together and when Phil sings guide vocal it's so raw and vulnerable and as, as you're saying people say Phil didn't bring emotion to the, this is a track that shows you that well there's a, a certain amount of bitterness at the end a little bit yeah. Yeah. And oh, yeah. looking yeah. back now at what he was going through at that time it, it kind of really hits it home with with how he's singing and he's he's reaching inside himself to sing this yeah. Right. Yeah. In my case, uh, English not being my mother tongue, I remember when I first heard the song, I had no clue what he was saying, but the way he delivered, the way he sang, I was moved almost to tears. I was like, wow, oh. this is, uh, I have no clue what he's saying, but the way he sang it, I was yeah. like, wow, okay. It yeah. just goes to show exactly how, how much information is communicated in, in, the, in the actual timbre of the voice and how it's, yeah. how it's produced. Yeah. It's very theatrical. Like when I hear this song, I picture dark stage and a spotlight yes. um, happening. And yeah, it's a, uh, it's yeah. I, I can't say anything more than what's already been said. But I will say, because um, you know, I always have something right. to say. <laughs> this to me, the end of this song um, and going into Man of Our Times, best transition on the album. Oh, you know, yes. I love my transitions, yes. and yes. this gets the number one for uh, for Duke to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this, you know, I've talked about previously, it's like, for me, one of the draws for Genesis for me is that sense of drama. You know, it's, and, you know, and it every album has some of that. And that's what this track is. It's this sense of drama. It's not melodrama. It's not over the top, but it just has, you, you get the emotion that you're supposed to get from this music. And then the transition into...
yeah, huge surprise for mm, me yeah. on this one. It was actually only listening back to this album um, in preparation for the podcast that I realised this is my favourite Genesis track of them all. Surpri- surprising because... <laughs> I think you'll find that every single person has a very... I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 and like anything else, this is just my opinion. Sure, but, exactly, and, and, yeah. I, and I also recognise that uh, in probably six months' time or a year's time, I might have right. another favourite Genesis sure. track. But I, even I was surprised when I suddenly realised this was the track that really did it for me above all other Genesis tracks. So what is it about this track? Why exactly. You... The why that Peter just said. I think it's because, um, and I, I, I think I've mentioned this uh, in passing, but never really fully acknowledged that I am a big, huge Rutherford fan. I love his songs. And I didn't, again, fully realise this myself until... Until we, funnily enough, until we started talking about the and then there were three and during the and then there okay. were three episode, uh, where um, Tom and I had a, a fundamental difference over Snowman, you know, uh-huh. and, and and I suddenly realised that it, what I love about his stuff is that he does wide epic soundscapes very well. Right. In fact, in my opinion, slightly better than actually not even slightly much better than uh, mm. than Tony Banks does. Tony Banks does um, Gravitas. Sure. I just think that there's something about um, uh, Rutherford tunes which are just epic. Okay. Uh, and he does these great epic choruses. And, and I also think that it's one of the tracks which has got the best example of Screamy Phil on yeah, it. Yeah. Um, it is, Phil just opens up his vocal cords and belts this one out. Yeah. And it's also, in my opinion, got an amazingly good drum beat all the way through this it goes from these big toms and the china cymbals to uh, to these big power chords and there's a there's a lovely moment in the middle of it where where it just hangs for a second before this big that tingles up and down my spine moment really I, I'm. I was shocked that this is a. Tra- I, I'm amazed that this is a track that was not played live, because it screams live track yeah, to me. I totally and agree. although it might have just ripped Phil's voice too much to try to replicate this every every show, so you know this reminds me of back in back in New York City, which I think was also maybe musically a Rutherford song, um, and it just has that feel to it. Yeah, I, I mean. I agree with you, Simon. Like his vocal performance is phenomenal, yeah. but I think it's it's just where he shows his greatest range. Like it's all over the place. Like he's yeah. singing softly and mm. more emo, you know, moaning more. Then he's screaming, right. and then there's this effect. Is that the Vodafone? I don't know. Like some Vakoda. like Vakoda. Yeah. I don't know. Vodafone, <laughs> isn't it? Like Vodafone. <laughs> oh, I know yeah. that's staying in, right? It's okay. She's now. Oh, I think it's South it. Dakota. South, <laughs> South Dakota effect. And it was mixed in doubly. Uh, why, why not? Let's just keep going with this. Right. But, you know, it, it, it is. It's just he's so, it's this range and it, there's this anger and this song's a huge block of sound. Yeah. Like, you have no room here. Your ears are at capacity when you're listening to this, <laughs> yes. um, and you you can't take a breath. Like yeah. you, you're breathless at the end because it's just so much coming at you, 
in, in such a short amount of time. I love this song. It's not my favorite. I don't have the love feelings that you have for it, Simon, but um, it is an absolute statement on this album. It has one of my, two of my favorite Genesis moments is when they end with there is another beating heart and then there's this blank space and all you hear boom, boom, all at once I can see. Yeah. And then the very next line when that effect on Phil's voice when he goes me into me, you into you, and there's a, there's a, a, a stuttered drum, bump, 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 bump. And it's just fantastic. It's just those little things that I think we were talking before on another podcast how they, it's deceptively simple, but when you really listen to it, there's so much going on there. And there, there's something you can almost pick up every single time you listen to it. You're like, all right, well, now I'm going to listen to it and follow the bass through it. And then next time you're oh, well, I'm going to follow the drums. And you're like, oh, I didn't know they were doing this. And even even listening to this album, there was a little bit on a future song which I don't believe I ever heard before but I also just really listening to it I'm like there's things that you pick up on all the time mm-hmm. right there's a part that it says when it says uh, Phil says tonight tonight and I was at tonight <laughs> <laughs> right it just one more tonight and they could have been six years ahead of the yeah. well, when you think so. about it when he, the very fact that he got the, the line uh, from the track Paper Late by the yeah. fact that he was singing the word Paper Late from right. Dancing with the Moon at Night I think that there's probably a, yeah. some weight in what you I'm say sure, there Ellie yeah. So this is, again, Tom mentioned this line, you know, the all at once, I can see what we do, me into me and you into you. It's, again, I don't quite know what it means, but it just has that power and drama behind it that, you know, sells the song for me. It's got a creepy Gabriel yeah. feel yeah. to yeah. it. Like, Gabriel's good with the creepy lyrics. Right. Like, this this lyric is very creepy Gabriel-esque. I wrote spooky down yeah. with my word that I used to describe it, but it's it's that same feel. It's this... There's something unsettling about this yeah, song, yeah. and it should be. That's the, I think the way it's supposed to be. But. What do you think, Peter? Well, t- two things. Um, well, actually, three things. What does paper late actually mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> pa- paper hey, late. You just shouted, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. In the in the uh, moonlit night, I don't know what it means, and in paper late, I don't know what it means. But unless it means the paper's late. Um, but the, the main thing, uh, well, two things, is that um, yes, I, I think it's a tremendously powerful song and 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 i mentioned the master uh, the remastering which compl- uh, on this one particularly for me completely ruins it because on the original i feel like i'm in the room with them i mean aside from phil's kind of vocal effects it sounds like i'm in the room with the yeah, band you know, yeah. and, and you can hear every uh, on the master it's just it feels like i'm listening to it on a on an fm radio or something it just, it just takes all the the power away from me, um, but that's just my my thing. Uh, and we could get Francis Donnery to talk about uh, um, sound quality for several decades. <laughs> right, <I'm sure. laughs> that's a whole other podcast right there. Probably. Hi, hi Francis. Uh, but uh, yes, um, and, and the other thing is, I, I I was just thinking about it when you're talking about how you're a bit of a Rutherford um, fan, Simon. And I I got a theory as to why maybe why he's kind of so good at these epics, as you as you say. And I think being myself, well, first a piano player and then later sort of a wannabe guitarist, I think when you, when you write on guitar, it's very often, not always, but it's so much more of a direct process. Uh, and keyboard players are, are such clever bastards that they have to do you know, twiddling every five minutes, um, which Tony obviously does. And in things like um, Madman Moon, you know, where you think there's a bit in the middle, it's like, Look at me. Um, hmm. but, but guitarists who write songs, you know, 
I don't think they don't have that same approach and it's a lot more direct and maybe that's why Mike just uh, grabs you by the uh, the man balls. <laughs> there's also uh, there's this wonderful all the or nearly all the way through it. There's a, a a synth melody line going through it. Da, 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 da. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, that's something which uh, it just does not happen in any other um, song except for back in New York City. Okay. I think I think there's yeah. there's another. It's a similar one in, in back in New York City. When I listened to this, I I, I was I was very sort of like galvanized into sort of like my love for Genesis again <laughs> it, it just reminded me of my little 17 year old nugget self right. listening to, uh, to, to Genesis tracks for the first time going how on earth are they making me feel like this and I think it's, mm. it's nice to have those tracks that kind of remind you oh this is why I'm a fan of this band Exactly. You know, and, and again you know it could be for any band but in this one particularly for you this is that track that can keep that Keep that fresh for you. In a this is, a, I genuinely do believe, and, and this is, again, I, I can only say it's my own opinion, I really do believe that this is one of those lost classics, yeah. these ones that are completely overlooked yeah. by, the, uh, by the mainstay, possibly because it was never played live. Right, yeah. Exactly. Well, Steve said that, I mean, when, when we interviewed him, Steve Hackett said that, you know, if, if a song isn't played live, it can kind of end up being a lost song. And that it's difficult, you know, because, again, people don't have that repeated exposure to it. Or they don't hear it on a live album along with the studio versions. So, yeah, this is, there's a lot of buried classics on this album. Cul-de-sac's another one, mm -hmm. you know, that, that were never played live that were kind of, again, to me, obvious stage songs. But maybe they just didn't work out or they didn't fit in with you know, want with what else they wanted to play for this tour. So. There was one other thing which I think is an incredible rhythmic trick, which I don't think they did much, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is the, the fact that all the way through this uh, song, it's in half time. Okay. And yet right at the very end, it doubles up. Okay. And you hear him singing the refrain of Man of Our Times in half time, and then he doubles up on the drums, okay. and it, it doubles the time as okay. it fades out. Yeah, and it's yeah, uh, yeah. it's an incredible power. It's an incredibly powerful thing, especially if you hear in the background that uh, Tony's keyboards, he then uses inversions of the chords to go up, okay. to, to to again heighten the tension as it as yeah. it's fading out. Sure, that's what made me think almost that the, like uh, one of my notes was this feels like a snippet of something bigger. That's a good way of describing right. it. Yeah, I often and, felt that as yeah. well. And I and I don't mean that in a negative way. It just feels like, oh, this could have been an expanded song that, again, maybe with how they wanted to keep things a bit tighter uh, starting around now, it's it didn't get expanded. We're now going to move on to Misunderstanding.
Misunderstanding Phil's first solo writing credit on a Genesis album and a good single. Oh yeah, cracking single. Yeah. I, I like this single. I mean, yeah. To be honest with you, the reason why I like this single is because I was associate with, associated within the cage. Re- oh, because of Three Sides Live. Yeah. All right. And I love that that juxtaposition between uh, that and the uh, uh, and and uh, between. Um, uh, misunderstanding and uh, the boom, 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 boom of, uh, of the okay. live one, but that doesn't. I, I also really one of the things which I also really love about um, misunderstanding is, is it's um, it's a very sad song. Yeah. It's a very it's a song about a guy obviously sort of desperately wanting to get to, together with a girl, and the girl is obviously not more interested in him. But there's a lovely moment um, on uh, I think it's the Turn It On Again video mm-hmm. where he's singing this. Yeah. And he goes, uh, I still can't believe it. And then he points at Tony Banks and goes, he was just leaving. (laughs) That's a lovely moment for me. (laughs) So the... For, for me, this is part of my Duke origin story of this... When I got this album in 85 or 86, I played the album. And again, I was, you know, early in my Genesis fandom and going through the album, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This is cool. And as soon as Misunderstanding started, I was like, I've heard this song before. I know this song. And I, because it was played on the radio in 1980, 81, I was like, I recognized it from back then when I was nine or 10 and was like, oh, I know this song. And it was just kind of, it was cool kind of realizing that this song that I vaguely remembered and vaguely remembered liking was all of a sudden from the band that I now liked. It's also the song which I always just associate Hawaiian shirts with. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because of the video where all three of them are wearing Hawaiian shirts. As much as I love Phil, uh, for some reason this song doesn't do anything. I mean, it's not a bad song, it's a lovely song, but... Maybe I heard it too much sure. on the radio, or who knows. Ellie, we're back together again, because I completely agree with you. This song just sticks out like a sore thumb on the album. Like, you're listening to it, and then this comes on, it kind of, like, jolts you. It's like you come out of that willing suspension of disbelief, <laughs> in a way. Like, And it's not, like I said, it's not like a bad song. Um, it's just, it to me, it doesn't flow with the rest of the album. And, um, you know, I do prefer the live version. So the three sides live, you know, when they do, and that's like for most, I would say 99% of Genesis songs, when they take it out live, Mm -hmm. it it just makes it, you know, it's a little stiff on the album. Yeah, it's a little stiff. It's, it's, you know, because you can see there, there is, you know, kind of that Beach Boys kind of more relaxed vibe to it. Um, That rock and rolling kind of feel. Yeah. And, but it, it. It, because it's Genesis, <laughs> it doesn't maybe come across as, as well as maybe it was intended. In, in but um, it's a it's it's it is a good song. It's just to me, it kind of you know sticks out a bit on the album yeah. and not the best way. So mm. well, well, well I, I hate to pile in on it. Um, <laughs> That's fine. We I, pile I, in I, on songs I, all the time. I, I don't want to say it because I, I really have a problem at the moment with you know the prog. You get these prog snobs, you know, um, and, I, and I, I, I find myself ranting about it a lot. Um, but this one is 
I mean, I, I do like it. I, I love every song on this album, but but I find it it's just a bit too poppy for what the rest of the album is. I mean, it, I mean, if it'd been on uh, Abacab, I don't know, it wouldn't wouldn't have the same yeah. thing. But it's it's the contrast. But but um, that said, I mean, it's it's a fantastic result for Phil's songwriting again. Um, uh, and the, the other thing that only occurred to me when I was listening to the thing earlier, if you you mean that the the Toto song uh, "Hold the Line," yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very similar vibe to that, and I wonder. What time of when that came out? If it was a similar time, if Phil was well, Phil actually on the on the Duke interviews, he mentions "Hold the Line" and "Sail on Sail" a sailor as the songs that did I honestly, influence. I honestly that. didn't know that. So See, well. there you go. <laughs> See, there you go. But to me, it it sounds a little bit like it's kind of unfinished, like it that it's a little bit close to demo, and that it and I do think the live versions just made it flow better and. Oh. But I think that the lyrics, like, I, I really, this is a story song that, again, tells in three minutes a concise little story. You know, I still can't believe it. He was just leaving. You know, that's that climax of the song that I'm just like, oh. But, but even on the live version, it's like he kind of has to do his manic feel a bit. You know, the must be the must be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I do I do prefer the live version. And I actually really enjoy singing it. It's one of those songs I, I prefer to sing than to listen to. Okay, I hear you. Well, I will join, not to again pile on more, but... Uh, <laughs> join the pile. I'll join the pile. It's, it's one of those... It's a bag of shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be two songs I skipped on this album, and now it's down to one, and this is the one I skipped. Uh, it's, it's one of those tracks where I feel it would have been a better Phil song, and actually when I hear the version that he released on the Face Value Extras right, with sure. the horns, the live version that he did, yeah, yeah. it's such... like. That's how it should have been done. Like okay. sometimes you can take your, they can take their solo ideas and the, the group band can genocide it and it's terrific. Like right. like perhaps like Man what on was the like Man on the Corner or even like Man of Our Times. Yeah, like yeah, like sure. that has that's a Genesis song even though it's a Rutherford composition. But this I think it it should have stayed on a on a Phil record. Um, because it kind of sounds like a solo Phil song on a Genesis album. I said it, it's, it doesn't flow with the rest of the. Well, let things. me. I, I'm going to yeah. play devil's advocate here because I tend to agree. I, I tend to think this is is maybe the, the the song that didn't belong on the album. But there are two things in its favour. One, it was a huge hit, mm-hmm. and two, this was before his fame rose. Right. So yeah. as a result, there was no context in which right. to place this album to place on this album yeah. if this had been like two albums down the line I think a lot of people would have probably have come to the same conclusion and I totally get why everybody's saying this mm-hmm. but we're also looking at this in the case of 2020 hindsight right. exactly and I think too you know just realizing like this was the first time Phil was contributing like whole yeah. compositions right. and so to to use Ellie's word genocizing it you know um was a new thing for Mike and Tony. So I think it gets so much better. Like what Phil yeah. would bring to the band in later albums, mm-hmm. they were able to meld it and, you know, create, I think a stronger yeah. composition from what Phil would originally bring in. Right. But here it's, it's a little bit clunky. Right. They're probably still trying to get a feel for right. Phil's style yeah. and yeah, work Although around I also it. say, I think that again, later on in the album with the other Phil solo song, they do it so. Oh, I feel I know. they do it so well, but we'll talk yeah, about. Please yeah. don't ask when we get to it. So. I gotta get my tissues for that. I know we're all. We'll do some man tears then too. I can't so. masturbate to that. <laughs> well, you can, but it's very sad at the end. So, but um, all right, we'll now move into heat haze again. 
heat haze. No cloud, a sleepy calm, sun baked out, it's cooled by gentle breeze and trees with rustling leaves. Only endless days without a care, nothing must be done. Silent. As a day can be Far off sounds of others On their chosen run As they do All those things they feel Give life some meaning Even if they're down It's time to start just turned upside down <laughs> for about 30 years of being a Genesis fan I have always pronounced the song in my head as Heath Haze and I've now learned that it's Heat Haze yes Heat Haze and hopefully somebody listening will have also pronounced it Heath Haze and can write me and we can uh, re- I, think you, I think you're unique in that Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no no I, I've called it Heath Haze I think you're unique in that. Yeah. Why, why would you Why would you pronounce a song that is two words yeah. as a as a word that's not a word? Because <laughs> it's written as one word. Yeah. But it's but it's about. Oh, go ahead, Ellen. No, 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 I was gonna say again that English is not my mother tongue. I in my little notes I wrote health like health, <laughs> and then A Z E. Health Does it mean anything? Health no. no, it's, an, it's, a, it's an American right? insurance company. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there you go. So, and this is all medical stuff you use for I different think, problems. Anyway, you have. today, I, last uh, yesterday, I realized oh, all yes. this heat haze. Yes, it's heat haze because <laughs> it's it's heat haze because it's all about the summertime and seeing things in the distance through a haze of heat. There you go. Thanks for the mic lesson. It can be a healthy haze. Yeah, I. I, Talking about the music. Moving on. That's really all I have to say about this song. um, So. I love this song. I I love this song from the day I heard it. So. Me too. Great, great track. I love it too. It's it's a good closer for side one, and it it reminds me of another closer of an album side. Some of the lyrics and just the way that it's presented, 
is reminiscent of Chamber of 32 Doors for me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, I'll get that. Except when he gets to that line, it's time to stop this dreaming, then it kind of fast forwards to it's going to get better for me. Okay. It's kind of got that same uplifting feeling for me. Sure. But I said, I don't know what the song's about. I thought it was a Heath A's and it was some, some, <laughs> another British term, which I didn't know. Uh, no, I, but the I, song I, itself, I've, I've loved it. Yeah. yeah. Don't get Simon to screen with you. It is. It is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's exactly. We'll screen with you. <laughs> I agree with you about the Chamber of 32 Doors thing because that line, you know, beware the fisherman who's casting out his line into a dried up ri- 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 riverbed. You know, that to me, it's that whole kind of I'd rather trust a countryman than a town man type of line. And it's it's that contradiction or seeing very strange things that, you know, aren't the norm. So, yeah. I also think this is the most and then there were three sounding track on the album. Mm. Oh, but, yeah. but better than that. Better, like oh, if, I agree. It's, yeah. But, but this sonically, yeah, yeah. sonically, I, I yeah. get that. This could have found a home, I think, on and then, on then there were three. Right. For me, this is another triumph of Tony Banks' melody over his lyrics. Yes. <laughs> because you listen to the Phil singing these these lovely, um, tuneful lines, and you get to the end of it, and you think, oh, I have no idea what that was, what that was about. But 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 it's just the way it flows and the way the chords change. And um, but you do think though, sometimes when Tony's writing lines, you think, does somebody have to tell him to stop? Like, <laughs> casting out his line into a dried up riverbed and don't try to tell him because he won't believe you and anyway if you don't mind me saying so and it just goes on it's the imagery versus content yeah. that I think that you know a lot of songwriters you know they tell a story in a song or whatever and so Tony with this song it's about this idea of kind of a la- what I consider kind of a lazy summer day but there's these other images and about you know, making, moving forward, you know, it's time to join the r- real world, you know, throw some bread to the ducks instead, it's easier that way, you know, it's, sometimes it's easier to disengage from things than to engage with it, it's a Tony lesson. Another Tony lesson. <laughs> yes, yeah, Tony is, Tony has his uh, book of how you should live your life, and <laughs> right. this is chapter eight. <laughs> so. Well, Tony's also one of the guys which I also believe, along with Peter, um, brings the most um, evocative imagery yes. uh, to his lyrics. And uh, there really is a sense of, I, I do get that sense of heat. Right. I do get that sense of sort of like, um, of uh, reflection, if right. you will, um, emotional reflection. Some music is associated with season. We talked about, and then there were three being a very winter album. And this is a very summer album. It's a great way of describing yeah. it, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. very close. Yeah, you know, it's a quintessential Tony Banks song from the lyrics to the chords to the yeah. title, but Phil gives it one hundred and ten percent. I think when we were watching the the reissue interviews, where Tony did say that this was the first album that he thought Phil really became a singer, right. like just felt the lyrics. Like he wasn't trashing him on previous albums, right, but yeah. a song like this, where it's not the easiest lyrics to sing, but you you hear it, Phil's delivering them. Yeah, because yeah. I, I honestly do believe that that one of the things that really lit his fire is that he got the blues on this album. Yeah. It's it's full of wistfulness and sort of despair. And I've, I've written this in my notes. I'll read you this because I think I wrote something that was vaguely profound. Um, <laughs> uh, that, you know, obviously you get, again, Gabriel Collins comparisons. And people say, or some people say, um, Gabriel has way more emotion than Phil. And I think he does in that kind of wonderful, I've called it a wonderful deepness and a fragile strength. 
that's but, a good but, way of describing it. But, 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 and he does. He, he has this subtlety that Phil perhaps doesn't have. But when it comes to, oh, God, you know, I feel like, you know, I've, I've, my world has come to an end and I've been betrayed and, you know, or when it's about happiness or basic emotions, Phil lords it. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I agree hundred percent. You know exactly what he's what he's singing about and what it, what if he's if he's pissed off, if he's happy, you know, you know, it just comes through. We're, we're we're entering into the decade which was the last gasp of the side one and side two album. Yeah. Um and what a great way to finish it aside, really, really, to be honest with you. Yes. And so with that, we'll flip the record, flip the podcast over to Turn It On Again. So this is a great song. It's hard to yes. go wrong with Turn It On Again. Especially live. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great live. I, always like, I love the way, I, I can't remember, I think it's actually on the Mama Tour where he does this thing where he counts it off by doing flicking his fingers out. Yeah, either one, like, two, Yeah, three, exactly. For, well, you know, that great visual cue. And that, that's now something I always think is synonymous with that track, yeah. is that, that counting. And indeed, it's, it's on the album. It's, you know, something that you need to hear when you see it live. Now, remind me again, when we were watching the documentary last yeah. night, the original version of this uh, was, was a riff that uh, Mike Rutherford had right. come up with, that, yeah. was a lot slower. Yeah. yeah, he said it was a slow riff, and this was kind of a link in the Duke Suite piece that was linking basically, you know, the first three songs, you know, it, this would, would have been after Died Vocal, yeah. going into Duke's Travels, Duke's End. And but then, as Tony said, he's like, "Oh, this is Phil had the idea of speeding it up. It worked better sped up." And then they said, "Oh, this is too strong. We can't just do it once, so we'll do it twice." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and they talked about it being a single that it was strange that you don't really have the hook, the turn it on again line until the end of the song. And again, it didn't. Re- I didn't really think about that either. That it was. There's no real chorus to this song again until the outro, until the end of the th- end of the song. So it's which which Phil doesn't really. I mean, he sings it a bit live, and then he starts doing his turnip, turnip, turnip. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Again, it's playing around with it live a bit more. You know, again, it, it got really, expanded you know, in the Mama tour, and you know, I was the so, you know the so-called hook line. He doesn't really use it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, but there is, you know, it's, again, one of these moments, again, it says shivers down my spine on the on the Mama Tour video when 
the entire crowd at the end is singing that line along, not even with Phil, but just yeah. on their own. That type of thing always gets to me in these live concerts when, you know, the crowd kind of spontaneously does this, you know, sing-along or contributing to the track. But but that doesn't talk about the album version. So let's... Uh, let's the uh, album version I, yeah. I really like. I think that um, it's probably... Uh, my favourite version. There are a couple of good live versions, but really at the end of the day, if I want to listen to this song, I'm listening to the studio version. I think it's simply because there's a tightness uh, and, a, and a directness. And also, again, I just love Tony's keyboards. Yeah. There's big CP80 sort of like chimey, gah, gah, right at the very start. I yeah. think it's fabulous. Well, I, I love the album version if for no other reason than it doesn't include Karma Chameleon. <laughs> yeah. But the vocal, the vocal is, is better, I think, because when, when on the live versions, Phil was going through that whole soul singer bit, wasn't he? Where like in Afterglow, where, where he'd be going, oh, he'd be doing all these yeah. warbles. Uh, whereas on the album, it's like, feel like a friend. There's like a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost like a predecessor to, to Mama, really, isn't it? It's like, is that, you know, there's some kind of animal passion going on there or something? It, I mean, it is ironic that, that it, a lot of us here are plumping for the for the studio version when it's such a synonymous, a synonymous track with them oh, playing sure. live. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, I prefer the live version. I mean, it's... Uh, Which version of the live version, though? Ah, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, as Tom said, with, not with it. Culture club and pop songs, whatever. Officially, it's called, I think, That Damn Medley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That Damn that Medley. Right. <laughs> the, the interesting thing, I, I, I've said, like, I've been, I've been listening to all these bootlegs in order that a friend gave me. And so, you know, on the Mama Tour, when they started doing this, it started out with Phil just kind of riffing on things, on different lyrics during the outro, during the end of things, like some of these older 60s songs. And then, you know, about halfway through the Mama Tour, it got more arranged. And, you know, that's by the... It was interesting that, you know, they seem to be able to pull together this arrangement, the live arrangement, pretty quickly of adding in these other songs to it. And they would f switch things in and out, just depending upon maybe a, what they felt like doing that night, which was nice. So, And at that point, it was still only... The song is a four or five minute song. At that point, the extension only made it a nine-minute song. It's like when it got to be maybe 15 minutes, it got to be a little bit much. Yeah. It reminds me of I Know What I Like. It's yeah. a, a shorter, straightforward song that they could carry a rhythm and yeah. kind of a, a looping melody line through. So I could see how live they were able to be flexible mm -hmm. with it, and they experimented. Sometimes yeah. it went wrong, <laughs> yeah. um, and sometimes it worked really well. I think in a live setting, when you're at a concert, that kind of stuff yeah. is fun. When yeah. you're watching on a DVD, DVD, yeah. years later, it's right. like, yeah. eh, it doesn't yes. have that energy or, you know, that, that you kind of would have felt in the in the live setting, yeah. so. But I've, obviously, I've never seen it live, uh, obviously, uh, but you guys have seen it, and I, and I wonder, uh, how do Tony, or particularly Tony, how does he look, what's his facial expression when Phil's doing his, everybody, uh, I can just imagine Tony inside going, Tony's going, oh, no, no, no. His expression doesn't change during any of this stuff. I think he's very... And this is all music that he loved in the 60s, too. So I think it's not like, you know, something that he would have been against. Again, as Phil said, you don't do anything in Genesis that Tony Banks doesn't want to do. Oh, my. <laughs> so, oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, so I think that that's, you know... No... The other thing I wanted to make mention of is that... Uh, and, and I think every 
uh, Genesis fan who who sort of like has has dipped their toe further into the water than just the the, the casual fan knows is that this song is not in straight four four time. It's in thirteen eight, right. which has this sort of like looping thing that goes through. I think is it every three bars it, it yeah, jumps maybe. basically. Yeah. The live version, if I had to pick mine, would be either three sides live. Or maybe a boot from the 80 tour, sure. where they just did a straight rocker start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I've seen video of him from the Mama tour and Three Sides Live doing it so much that every time he sings a line, could you do anything for me? My hand starts creeping from my neck <laughs> da- down down to my crotch yeah, yeah. and pulls it back up again. Yeah, it's a little visual thing. But then that does it for every Genesis song. So. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, what's different about this one? <laughs> I, I, the line that, you know, lyrically, I think this is a Mike lyric also, that it was, you know, the just the line, I get so lonely when she's not there. You know, it's yeah. there's some of those very direct yeah kind of lyrics that you wouldn't have heard on a previous Genesis album. They're so. adults now. Yeah, they're exactly. Right. They're grown-ups. You know? <laughs> but, but why does yeah. Phil stammer on the Live Over Europe version? Yeah. yeah. That's, That's a good question. Little, little, little. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someone put an ice cube down his back or something yeah. at that point. I don't know. And to go back to the album version, I like the uh, harmonies at the end, yeah. the Phil harmonies. Oh, and yeah. I, and, and behind the lines, yeah. The behind the lines harmonies too are fantastic. Yeah, like there's yeah. another thing like overall the album. I like Phil's harmonies yeah, on this. They really, it's really good. they thought about the yeah, vocal arrangements. Absolutely. So. Excellent. Well, I think we talked about that shorter than the extended live version. <laughs> so we'll now move on to what the record company thought the obvious single was on the album, "Alone Tonight." <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing here I can understand And no one cares I'm a lonely man I touch your face and I don't know why I call your name but you're going by Now I'm alone I have no name for each and every day Until the year is done and fades away There's a time in between the two Old is gone, but it's not been you and I Alone tonight. Uh, alone tonight. If if I had to if I had to guess, um, and I don't actually know, it, is it a Rutherford? You are oh, guessing correctly with that. It is a Rutherford and, song. And um, it's um, you know Phil always gets the, the blame for the decline of Genesis and, and the the ballads and the pop and all the all the other nonsense that you know. 
Um, but um, follow you, follow me, Rutherford. Uh, your own special way, horror of horrors, uh, <laughs> Rutherford. Uh, Into deep was that Rutherford as well? I believe. No, that was actually Phil's lyrics. So. Oh, uh, throwing it all away. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh yes, um, that was Mike's. Yeah. Uh, not to mention various Mike and the Mechanics um, ballads. So if any if anyone's the ro- the big romantic in Genesis, I think it's uh, I think it's Mike Rutherford. Do you know, uh, do you know you're um, absolutely spot on the money there, sir. Yeah. And and I, I mean, there's uh, there's not a song on this album that I don't love. Um, so I, again, the whole album is kind of ingrained on my brain from listening to it over and over and over again. And I don't know, it's it's almost a it's a lovely song anyway. But there's something about the orchestration, you know, particularly in the middle bit. You know, when the sun is out. That that whole kind of little break is like, oh, that was interesting. That's that's a bit different. Then it comes back in with the, and it's like a sort of kind of a welcome break. And it's definitely not your average um, romantic song. It's got different parts to it, and um, again, it kind of uh, sticks out a bit like a sore thumb. Uh, but I do like it nonetheless. So yeah, I'm done. This is Rutherford pouring his heart out successfully. As it's come a long way since your own special way. And you figure that was only two albums yeah. prior to this. Right. I mean, um, he's really matured in his writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows how to do direct better. Right. It's yeah. a lot more direct, and, and they're kind of opening up where Phil probably came natural to him. Yeah. Now Mike and, and Tony are starting to say, you know, well, Phil's doing it. it. We can do it, too. And this is a very successful track. I think this and the other one that he was the B-side, Open Door. I mean, it's just Mike really pouring it out and mm-hmm. and i said these 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 as i said this works this works yeah and i think it must have been a bigger transition for them as it was for the for the listeners because you know i can't imagine that any public school boy i mean i'm generalizing of it obviously but i can't imagine that any public school boys would have liked to have put their hearts on their sleeves and sang about romance i mean they probably never had a girlfriend until they were like so so i mean obviously phil was not like that but um you know, I, I imagine that, like you just said there, Tony and Mike were probably thinking, well, oh, hold on a minute, C- can we do this as well? Because, you know, because we actually do have some feelings sometimes and we quite like to <laughs> sing about them, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. I wonder whether or not they've reached a point in their life where they've actually lived a life, uh, lived enough of a life to actually talk about it. Because, I mean, we were speaking in a couple of episodes back about their obsession with classical mythology. Yeah, right. exactly. Simply because... You know, what have you learned in that in those early years, right. except really sort of like what you've learned at school in right. some ways? I mean, I don't think it's entirely like that, but I certainly yeah. think there's an element of that. Yeah. They've seen the they they've been interpreting the world and through their music outside in up until this point, and then this is where it really is inside out, yeah. um, like from everybody in the band. I think there was like hints of it, you know, throughout their career, earlier career, mm-hmm. but this is where they they've really like turned this yeah. was you know as mike says about all their albums an important album for them <laughs> <laughs> and you know it, it, it's yeah you could just see like they're they're finally at a point in their experience and in their life where they can they have enough to 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 write from within and send that out into the world instead yeah. of oh this is what i've seen out in the world and i'm going to reinterpret it in lyrics and in music it's now the other way around yeah, writing, like in first person yeah right. yeah I mean, it wasn't wasn't uh, a curious feeling around a similar time yeah, to yeah. Duke. It was, uh, and, and and you. I mean, that's Tony. Sorry, oh, yeah. Tony's Tony's most direct 
love song, you know, and um, yeah, so he, he was at it as well. Yeah. And I think that for me, Rampant like, boss. I, I, li- <laughs> I liked this song on re-listening to it recently more than I thought I was going to because it's it does have a bit more depth than I gave it credit for. It still, I think, needs to be just a little bit more direct than it is to really kind of make it, again, the obvious single type of thing, but it's... It was one of those tracks that I, I I found myself surprised that I was liking it as much as I did. Yeah, me too. The first time I heard the album, I, I think it might have been my favorite track in the whole really? album for some reason. Maybe because of the acoustic guitar, which yeah, I love. Yeah. Uh, but now I, I think it have, I have mixed feelings. Sometimes I love it and sometimes mm-hmm. I can skip it. <laughs> right. Well, the, the thing that does it for me, which doesn't make it like a, a 10 out of 10 and kind of reduces mm-hmm. it, is probably that pathos that he's going for isn't really there in the chorus because the chorus mm-hmm. is very anthem yeah. like I'm alone again alone yeah, again tonight yeah. like you're not supposed to be happy seeing that like I have a wife and two kids when they go out this is a celebratory song I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my own again I'm alone tonight <laughs> maybe that's what he was going for yeah, yeah. Oh, we would have to reread these lyrics yeah. the walking around the house in your underpants exactly. I'm like Tom Cruise in Risky Business <laughs> yeah this is the classic Genesis Big chorus, verse, huge wall of sound chorus, you know. So I could see how, like, the record company might have thought it's a single. And I wonder if that's what got in their ear because they repeated this style throughout the rest of their albums until the end, so. Uh, And again with the Tonight. Yeah. Tonight, tonight, tonight. This is where that third Tonight went to from uh, (laughs) Man of Our Times. Excellent. It's the the curse of Cool and the Gang. (laughs) <laughs> Everything's going to be all right tonight. Exactly. Well, we will circle around again and head off to cul-de-sac now. Wake up now. This is the time you for. Thank you. 
one thing I love about the song, is it's totally Tony Banks, of course, is that it's an odd kind of like style of a song. He starts off with a single lyric and then goes into the instrumental opening of it for a while. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's not just sing right off the bat or it's not just a s- standard, here's a verse, here's the chorus. It's like this little preview, wake up now. This is, and then there's instrumental for like another minute or so. Yeah. And then it finally kicks in. And it's just, it's kind of like a man of our times, but Tony's version. Like yeah. it just yeah. keeps on yeah. going and going and right. going yeah. and never lets up. And it just, it's, it grabs you. Yeah, it has that great build at the end with the chords. Da, 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 da. This was the final album that the band recorded with their long-term producer, or long-time yeah. producer, David Henschel. Right, you're correct. Um, and uh, one of the things which I always really liked about David Henschel's sounds was that it was kind of a prototype of the 80s drum sound. It was big, it was wide, yeah. it, it had some room to it. I'm not entirely sure whether or not... Um, uh, why their relationship ended, but whether or not they were just sort of like they'd felt that they'd done everything creatively yeah. as, as a producer and a band with with one another. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I do think that this is, for me personally, the quintessential David Henschel produced track. Okay, sure. um, these big sort of like wide sounds, and it's especially for some reason I don't know why, but I always end up focusing on the hi hats. And there's oh. a lot sort of this sort of sixteen beat hi-hats all the way through this and um it's uh it 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 sticks in my mind as being again you were talking a little uh, a while back about being there was a sort of three album transition yeah sure Uh, but i genuinely do believe that this was the most significant shutting of the door Mm. on their previous uh output you could feel the transition starting on and then then there were three and you could feel it completing on uh, Abacab. Right. This album really seemed to, uh, in, the, in the same way that you could say it contained stuff from the past and from the future, which made it great, mm-hmm. it also um, made it a bit nebulous as well. Sure, it was right. neither fish nor flesh. Yeah. Well, and this is a track that, you know, had it been on, and then there were three, would have been a burning rope. An eight or nine yes. minute track yeah. would have been more expanded. Here it's a little bit more concise and everything, so I think it's we hadn't reached the me and Sarah Jane part of it yet. Right, right. So which and but this track, you know, there's to me it's it kind of echoes Duchess in a way, you know, you thought you'd rule the world forever, you know, there's this idea of, of things passing and maybe you're not as cool as you thought you were. Maybe you're not as good as you thought you were. You and, know? and this it's, is a song packed with little uh, melodic themes as yeah. well. You know, there's lots of sort of like the, the vocals go this way and that. Mm-hmm. And as I said, this is one of the reasons why I make mention of me and Sarah Jane is that it's a. Uh, I remember when they were discussing that, or when we were discussing mm-hmm. it on the Abacab episode, that they were sort of like doing trying to do an epic concisely. Yes. Yeah. And I, I genuinely believe that this is this is like. A little bit of that, you know, yeah. and I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a, a you can draw a direct line between Burning Rope, mm-hmm. Cul de Sac, and me and Sarah Jane sure. all the way through that yeah. in terms of arrangement. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's like a for me, it's a return to the prog after mm. after the, the romance. Right. And 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 I, I mean, I have this, I have this, this, had this theory, I can't speak, I've had this theory for a while that, um. People tend to have gone off Genesis, not not just because of Phil's voice or because of the synths or because well, well, I think it's more to do with the, the synths and the, and the general sound because it's not what they remember. Uh, and I I think if this was done on 
if this song had been written on Foxtrot, for instance, with, with, with Mellotrons and um, with, with Gabriel doing that, you know, now that the job is almost done, maybe someone's get... You know, if he was, if he was belting that out uh, with a little flute bit in the middle, I think everyone would absolutely love it. Uh, but because it's on Duke and it's got a, a CP, whatever it is, piano on it, bleh. And, um, and I conducted this experiment um, when I did my last little collection of Genesis rip-off covers. Mm -hmm. um, and I did the version of Follow You, Follow Me, which I basically um, uh, put a bit of stagnation into, uh, into, into Follow You, Follow Me, and I made it like, into a long, sort of more proggy version. Okay. And then I had people saying to me, wow, I never realised, you know, it's actually a great song, and you've, you've made it, I'm like, it's the same song. I just put a little bit in it, and I changed. I changed the instruments around and gave it some twelve string and a bit of um, a bit of Hammond. It you just know, goes to show exactly how much instrumentation provides a mm. huge amount of context for the, the you know in in how the song is played. I've been begging Simon to record Invisible Touch with the same instrumentation as Foxtrot. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Because <laughs> I said well, I bet if people heard it within yeah. that instrumentation they would love it. And that's what I've <laughs> and that's what I've said about what I would like to see cover bands do is take the modern tracks modern again from the 80s 30 years ago now but take those and record them like the foxtrot nursery crime era and take the nursery crime era tracks foxtrot and try to arrange them like an 80s song you know to show that there is a unity to this music that sometimes isn't obvious because of the passage of time i'm not entirely sure i would want to convince people sure. of that and yeah. really at the end of the day i i mean i think it's an intellectual exercise that's a yes, great it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. That's why I did it. I wanted to prove a, prove a point, really. Right, and I yeah. also, I also, I also did Invisible Touch. I don't know if you've heard that I, one. I did. I remember hearing your version which, of Invisible which Touch was, Which well. is basically a Steve Hackett interpretation of Invisible okay. Touch, which, I mean, it's, it's almost laughable. When you, <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you realise what it is, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then you get people saying, wow, that's beautiful. I'm like, uh, well, thank you, but I'm almost taking the... The Michael slightly, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But it's it's it. But it shows a perspective on the music that's just a different piece. And I think that you know this is this is one of those tracks that I think could be rearranged to be an old song. You know, yeah. in that stereotypical old song in way. Fact, in fact, I'm going to do it. I'm All right. Do it. Oh, there you go. That's right. You heard it here first. We folks. look forward yeah, right. to hearing that. So, I love the lyrics of this. I think that this is one of those. Again, it's it's a Tony story, so it's not an explicit, you know, narrative A to B type of thing. But there's just a lot of there's a lot of imagery here and a lot of lyrics that I can just hang my hat on. You know, it's mm. you know, how can you fight a foe so deadly when you don't even know it's there? You know, there's there's these little gems that get dropped into Tony's songs where I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's a great little lyric. I, like, it it carries it along really and once well. Once again, for me. Phil sells it very well. Yeah, yeah. But it all rhymes. Well, yeah, exactly. Weird for Tony. <laughs> I was in 2001. I saw a show by Cinema Show, whom we interviewed Matt Brown recently, and he was in that show. And uh, they played about a month after 9/11, and. Um, Sean Garen, the late Sean Garen, who's the lead singer, he they played Cul-de-Sac. Okay. And he dedicated it to Osama bin Laden. I think because we were, it was also raw, and there are lyrics, like you said, uh, how can you know fight a foe so deadly when you don't even know it's there? You know you're on the way out, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. So it was kind of like this cathartic 
version of cul-de-sac that he played for us so that yeah. was it was great to finally hear it live and in that context the one thing i will say about this track is that i don't know you can hear him but for some strange reason artistically mike rutherford seems to be absent from this track oh well he's got all those nice little bass bits yeah i just it just it's just one of those songs where i actually feel that that mike actually features very heavily on this album i think yeah. that this is a an album yeah. which which mike actually shines yeah. but this is the one track in which i think he does recede a little bit into the background yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing because every person needs a spotlight and yeah. to, to, to come back and, and play a supporting role at some time yeah. it's just it's not one of those things where i listen to it and go Mike Rutherford really nailed it during that. Yeah, there's some guitar at the end that jumps out, but there's not much throughout the the track. And and maybe this is one of those things that, you know, we've talked about Fading Lights, where it's just the three of them. Maybe this could have been a, had they done it live, you know, Phil would have, you know, if he wanted to sing behind the drums, you know, this maybe could have been another three-man song to perform, or just with Chester. If, Did they ever play this live? No, this was never... Never. I don't even know if it was rehearsed up, you know. So, again, that's, that's I think, the, my only real kind of issue with that Duke tour was that they did the, the Duke suite. And then in the U.S. they also did Misunderstanding. But that was pretty much it from this album. Okay. So, and that was a big chunk of this album. But it would have been nice to hear... Maybe if they had been able to kind of rotate in one song a night. Like, oh, we rehearsed up, you know cul-de-sac and man of our times and we alternate mm. them or something like yeah. that that might have been a nice thing and not play i don't know something else that they you know they could take out of the set list so. in in a lot of ways though this album suffers from having incredibly strong material yeah. on it and as a result yeah. tracks like this who you know i i would kill for a track mm, like right. this or, you know on, on an album which i would write they kind of get overlooked a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like Heath Hayes. Heath Hayes. Or... <laughs> <laughs> because that was never played that, that either, up, right? So. That was yeah. never. Yeah. So it's a great song that it, it's forgotten. Yeah. But then you, you see that pressure going on and getting worse later on as they went on because when they came back on for the encore in Europe, I'm thinking, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? I'm like, oh, oh, for God. Of all, of, all, of all the awesome songs you could have played off We Can't Dance and you've got to play that. And, and they, have to do, they have to do the hits. The more hits they did, the more they had to do. There's that mix of, you know, how, like, do you want people walking out after, at the end of a show saying, oh, they didn't play this, they didn't yeah. play that. And, you know, not everybody, not everybody has a podcast about a band and wants to hear Seven Stones at the end of a show. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and this is where this is where you have to be prepared to, yeah. to, to uh, you know, yeah. you've got you you're in an impossible position and a very lucky position yeah. if you're a member of Genesis to have a back catalogue as amazing as yeah. they they have with which is chock a block full of very very deep powerful uh, songs and hits. Yeah. And Genesis has always been very good, and I've, we've talked about this kind of offline, about not being wedded to, oh, we have to play this song, yeah. we have to play that song. They are very, in some ways, ruthless about saying, ah, it's time for that song to go. We give that a rest for a little bit of time. Because, you know, they have, they have a lot of these great stage songs they built through the 70s that at some point you say, well, if, we're, if we only play those songs, we have no time for anything new to build up a new group of stage songs. So, But then, you know, then you have to sort of, I mean, I have to respect them as well because, thank you, darling, my wife just bought me a, a drink. Thank you, darling. Love you. Love you. Aww. 
she, she walked off. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when they they did hold on, hold on my heart on the on the European tour, right. yeah. And I'm like, oh, I love this song. You know, the romantic. And then everybody in the room just started talking and going for a drink. I'm like, you, ignorant sods. But you know, they played they played a hit which apparently everyone else didn't like. <laughs> so it's compromise. I think it just goes to show the 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 ultimate subjective nature of being oh. a fan of a band isn't right. it really yeah yeah well now we're going to move on get your tissues out it's time for please don't ask If I'm being honest with you, this is the song which I have the least connection with. Okay. I don't think it's a bad song at mm. all. I think the lyrics are absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. But I just don't connect with okay. this. This is, for me, the, the, the one track which I, for some strange reason, I, I never really warm to. Right. And I think that um, listening back to it, uh, I feel a sense of my, my opinions about this being... Gently, slowly reappraised, mm -hmm. but it hasn't happened for me yet. <laughs> sure. I think that there's some wonderful backing vocals in okay. it. I think there's some absolutely gorgeous melody lines in it, and it's so very obviously a Phil song. Yeah. But there is, again, I think it comes down to what Stacey said. This deserved a place on on one of his albums. I. I actually think it's it works on the Genesis. Album. I think it does too, but I think it would have had a better place. I don't know. I think I think this song. I think Tony's chords 
really gave this, you know, okay. I think... I'm with you, Stacey. I'm yeah, with you. Yeah, absolutely. And and this this song, I mean, go to the heartbreaking. This is more heartbreaking than and everything on face value. <laughs> and hello, I must be going. Yeah. I mean, this, to me, it's, it's like he channeled it all into this one song. Yeah. It's so raw. It, it's he's You can hear the vulnerability mm-hmm. and the sadness and the frustration. And he's tired and he's, you know, desperate. It's just... Yeah, it does make me a little weepy. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it, it's a wonderful... I think it's in the, the right place in the album, like yeah. towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it just it just works. Of, of the, the Phil contributions to Duke, this to me is the best. And he plays this song on the Face Value Classic Albums documentaries, just sitting at a piano playing it. I think he has the CD booklet in front of him for the lyrics. <laughs> And you can still see that, you know, he's playing this at the piano and it still gets to him. You know, he still feels connected to this song. We talked about misunderstanding and and we kind of, a lot of, we said that would have been better if it was on face value. Well, I think the reverse of this is true. I think it's better that this was on a Genesis album because out of all the heartbreaking and sad, I mean, let's face it, divorce is good for... For songwriting, <laughs> um, and out of all the songs, I mean, "Leaving Me Is Easy," uh, uh, you know, um, know what I mean. Um, uh, all the other ones, um, this, I think, on face value, this would have been a bit overkill. Where, whereas on this album, it it provides a contrast, and the way that uh, I mean, they wouldn't have done it the same on a Phil album, but as you say, the way Tony does the chords and Mike's little kind of soulful guitar riffs, it, it it's a different way of doing it, and I think it. Works a lot better on Genesis album. This, this was a successful Genesisizing of a Phil song. Yeah, it works. And, and Mike was bringing up the face value, and I had said earlier that there were two songs that I used to skip, and I still skip Misunderstanding most times. I used to skip Please Don't Ask until I think I saw the face value, because I, I just thought it was like, oh, it's just a Phil love song. You know, I can skip over it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really give it its due. And then in the face value, when he's getting very emotional reading this, where you know, singing the lyrics, I was like. Maybe I should revisit this song. Like, mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I was in high school when I first got this, sure. and I didn't experience anything that he was going through. Yeah. And then just to to read it, it's it's the most heartfelt song that at least Genesis has put out to this point, and as you were saying, even Phil to this point. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but listen to these lyrics, and when he's saying the second time, maybe we should try. Don't say it. I know why. Yeah. I mean, that's just, like, mm. that gets you. Yeah. That, the one that gets me is get, getting me now, actually. Um, my, my my friend um, sings this song, actually. He sings it really well. But when he says, oh, but I miss my boy, I was like, well, <laughs> that, 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 I don't know what I just, when he says it, it's like, oh, you know, and he's saying that in front of all his bandmates as well. He's singing it. And that's, uh, I mean, did he, it just seems really honest and simple line, but it is very, very deep. Yeah. yeah. Well, Phil's able to take these little moments, like what Tom was just saying, that, you know, maybe we should try, don't say it, I know why, that it's, like, anybody who's been in a relationship can kind of realize, like, oh, yeah, there's, like, there's, like, hours in that one little line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and of, you know, thinking about these things. You know, the, the line, I can remember when it was easy to say I love you, but things have changed since then. Now I really can't say if I still do, but I can try. And I'm like, that's just, you know, it works, you know, as that emotion there. I, I, I think that these are all very valid arguments. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think I'm with Simon. Oh. 
Um, but there is one thing I will say that, that I think is telling that he was explaining all of this via a DVD about his solo album. You um, need a group hug after performing this yeah, song. Yeah. I think. <laughs> but I, I still I still stand by what I said yeah, about sure. the very fact that it, this doesn't appear on a uh, a conversation uh, to do with Genesis. The actual sort of like the the real sort of like yeah. focus of this was on a, a DVD which spoke about his solo work. Yeah. And I, I I genuinely I hear what you yeah. say. I think I think it's there's a lot of, of of what you said that which probably will make me reevaluate yeah. it. But. I'm still not convinced this needed to be on a Genesis album. I mean, don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong, it would have been great on Face Value, it would have sure. been absolutely fantastic, but, but it may be, you know, the album constraints, time constraints, yeah. and all the rest yeah. of it. And, right. and it was, you know, this, this is one of the songs that Phil played to the band that they said, yeah, we'll do that one. True, so, yeah. So, you know, yeah. that's... As opposed to In the Air Tonight, which none of them remember. Yeah, exactly. It was written as, it was written as, a, as a part of that Face Value process of generating material, but even Phil didn't know if that was going to be an album at that True, point. Yeah. So it's like, I, again, that's the kind of hindsight of it of like, would this have fit on face value? Yeah, it could have. But, you know, what was the other, I mean, could something else from there had gone on here instead to have Phil have two tracks like, like the rest of the guys? But I don't know. I, I, I again, I, I never want to say I like a song like this about the heartbreak and, you know, sadness, but it... But the song does... But it connects with you. Yeah, it connects with me in that right way. So. What about you, Ellie? I think it's, it's, it's not a song that I don't like, but I think it's too direct, too intimate. It's like a letter that you would send someone, your loved one, of, of, of course. But it's, it's so heartbreaking that I tend to skip it. <laughs> because it's like, okay, stop it, please. So I just have to skip it. Too right. many feels. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. well, I, I think I, sub, I subconsciously quoted it after a date in college what? with this girl, Amy Dinkins from Texas. We went out to dinner. Sorry, Amy. And after, you know, she's a great girl. She's a nice girl. I haven't talked to her, but uh, <laughs> after the date, I was kind of saying, you know, doing that prep, like, let's do this again. And she started saying, she started, I know, going into the, well, I just like you as a friend kind of bit. Aww. So I, I said, don't, don't say don't it. Don't say it. I don't say <laughs> it. I know what you're going to say. And that, and that was kind of it. I said, don't say it. I know why. <laughs> so you can be sad and walk away knowing, I just quoted Jesus. Yes. <laughs> Sit in your face. <laughs> you're a mother to the world. I what? Am. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but me and Simon was talking, was it on air or off air? I can't remember about English guys not taking compliments or English people not taking compliments. Uh, and and it kind of all ties in with that emotional um, uh, stiffness or whatever it is. This, uh, you know. And when people say that Phil doesn't have emotions, I'm like, I can hear the emotions that he's not he's not saying. You know what I mean? I, I I can hear that because we all because we know what it's like to sort of to to go around bottling it up and not and not saying it. And I can kind of hear that there's a tightness um, in his voice. You know, it's like you can hear something that he's not even saying, but because it's it's pent up, you know, yeah. and this or something was, like that. And this was well, and this was still so fresh for him at that point. This was, you know, this was written in '79 when he was going through this divorce, and you know, his kid, wife, and kids were out in Vancouver, and it's like, you know, this is this is immediate for him. This is still fresh. Well, we will move on now to the almost all-instrumental conclusion of the album, Dukes Travels and Dukes End.
One of my, you know, favorite concert-going moments on the 2007 tour was hearing the bits of Dude's Travels that they put into the old medley of the In the Cage medley. <laughs> and just hearing that, those pieces of music that hadn't been played since the Dude tour because they didn't, they didn't play any of that segment of the Dude suite after that. It was just fantastic, you know, and, you know, it would have been great to hear Phil sing that guide vocal line in there, too, yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, but having Daryl do it on guitar worked fine for me. It was just, I know that it probably would have been Im- impractical to do that lyrically at the time, so. But did you see, did you see the thing where he's doing, he's trying to do the double bass drum on, on the, on the documentary, and it's, it's funny, but it's sad at the same time, and he can't do, he's like, get that fucking camera off! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it's... It's getting back into that practice of doing it, and you know. I mean, he was struggling then, wasn't he? He was, he was, you know, a lot of. I think, I think that's going on. That's a very interesting thing you say about uh, the the double bass drum thing, because uh, if it was one thing that Phil, I personally think that Phil prided himself on, and and he was kind of known for was having the the fastest sort of like um, left foot in the business. Mm -hmm. Really, he he had this immense. Uh, capacity, and I think really uh, around about from sort of Brand X onwards, right the way through to probably the end of the uh, Mama tour, he was on in absolutely stellar form. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I know it's straight. It's strained from the uh, the point I'm going on a tangent, but I, I noticed that when when they did that, they did it live, and they didn't even bother with the the double bass drum. And I noticed that Chester backed off a lot. Yeah, um, which I'm guessing partly to do with obviously there's no point one drummer going for it and another one not, but um, also as I think a mark of respect, like Chester saying I'm I'm not going to go and blitz you when you when you clearly I mean you know he, he was having health problems wasn't he you know, Yeah, you know he was, he was struggling like hell and uh, and Chester kind of dropped back to 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 fit with him. This was ostensibly. It always comes across to me as a live piece. Yeah, sure. I often feel as though I'm in. I'm in the room, and it's um, it's one of those things that when I heard the the the, the Duke's Travels, Duke's End sequence, I was surprised at exactly how intricately arranged it actually was, sure. because it flows. Yeah, you don't notice the changes that are going on. The only thing that really breaks up the entire pace of it is that sort of. King Crimsony sort of yeah. like fluty yeah, the organ. The Crimson yeah. King, so oh, you know, I was about to say that that is the one part of the album. I go, um, come on, couldn't we have thought of a better way to join? The- oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I thought that was a callback to they they use that same fluty organ in uh, cul-de-sac in one of the verses. That is yeah. true. Yes. Yeah. So I thought maybe they're kind of like bringing elements from different songs back yeah. together as like a as a. It's like they were mixing epilogue. it down and they went. Yeah. Shit, we haven't joined it together. What can we do? <laughs> I don't know. For for me, I I I just feel that it's it's um it's an incredibly well arranged yeah. end sequence. Oh sure, and and there's it's something that didn't hit me until fairly recently, maybe maybe a year or so ago. You know, at Dude's Travels, at the end of it, you know, there's this kind of piano part, or it's Dude's End, where it's like it's the chords from behind the lines. Dun, yes. dun, dun, yeah. It's like the melody line, and I'm like. I, I heard that, but I didn't hear it before. And I'm just like, oh, I'm seeing these connections that are there that I didn't quite know of. And Tom was even talking about some of these offline. Right, like the the very end of Guide Vocal is repeated at the end of Duke's End, a right. little like, keyboard flourish. And it's a perfect bookend to the album. That's why I look at it as a complete package, because you start with Behind the Lines, you end with Duke's End, themes are repeated, and you feel like you've just 
taking a journey yeah. through this whole album. It's not an album where, oh, I'll just listen to that track. Like, preparing for this, I was excited because I got to sit down and listen to Duke start to finish, <laughs> exactly. which I probably hadn't done in a while, and I was just like, this is awesome. And it has probably the... We always talk about best opening songs in albums. This, I think, is one of the best closing songs yeah, of an album. Yeah. I mean, you have to go, for as hard as it is, you have to go back to, like, Trespass and The Knife for an album closer that yeah. hits so heavy. Yeah. And I love the, you know, listening to it for the first time, again, putting myself back in that, you know, 15, 16-year-old Mike Lord where, you know, Dudes Travels is building and building and building, and you're like, how is this going to get any better? And then when Phil's vocals come in with that guide vocal reprise, I'm like, oh my God, it has gotten better. <laughs> yeah, you know, that is like, wow. It's that emotional piece to it. You know, there's, I, I think I talked about that with Deep in the Motherload, that, you know, how is this going to get better? Then it does get better. And you're like, oh my God, this is, this is what I love about this band. This is one of those moments that you say, okay, this is why, you know, I, I listen through sometimes the stuff that maybe I don't connect with as much. So. It's also got one of those very um, subtly but very powerful intros as well, which mm. is that sort of all-in-a-mouse's-night ballad of big, mm. sort of hazy kind of wash of chords oh, with, with the cymbals and stuff. And then you get the tom-toms coming in, that, uh, which is really, to be honest with you, the very first time that, that you properly hear... Phil Collins doing the barking toms, sort of like, you know, that sort of like, you know, that whole sort of like rhythmic passage with these, with these toms, which are sort of like reverberating. Um, And then, you know, and then it goes into some very clever sort of like um, six, eight kind of sort of uh, rhythm sort of like between ride cymbal and and, and snare and and kick drum. And it's, um, it's a very drum led, um, uh, track in yeah. a lot of ways it's sort of like i won't say los endosy but certainly with that kind of sort of drive that that, that los endos had yeah yeah instrumental part of the cinema show like after the instrumental bit of cinema cinema show mm-hmm. i love plenty it might remind me here and there of the power of the drug drumming you know it's really powerful and sure uh, yeah it, now the keys that go really high like I'm not sure about that, but it, it's it's one of my favorite pieces of, of, the, yeah. of the album, so yeah, I it's pretty it. powerful. If I had one criticism about this album not as a allowed. sound, okay, go ahead. As a sound, I would say that it is shrill in places. Yeah, and that was I was in a conversation with one of the road techie people behind the scenes with Genesis. You know, I think the the 5.1 remix helped this a lot because being able to go back to the original tapes and everything. But the there's I was, a man three thousand miles away currently disagreeing. With I know, you. <laughs> but but one thing I was told about the mixing of this album was that you they see my face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. They they mixed this at Mason Rouge, which okay. was owned by he said Jethro Tull at the time, Ian Anderson, and he said that the way they liked to mix things there, which they didn't quite realize at the time, was that they took out all the what the bass parts of the speakers, the woofers. Yeah. And so, oh no, they took out the, the tweeters, the, the high-end parts. So they didn't quite realize this, and so they ended up having to kind of turn up the high-end a lot. And so for those, like, this was a very shrill album because where they mixed it, they were like, oh, this needs to be go up higher. We don't hear the high-end. And then when it went to normal kind of speakers, it was like, oh, it's really high-end. <laughs> so that was just some of the mixing oh, behind yeah, it. So yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So that's that was kind of a little behind the scenes techie stuff that I was like, oh, that's interesting to hear. I mean, you see, I grew up with a lot of that, and Francis Donnery has a real thing about this this treble and stuff in the eighties, and I grew up with that. Yeah. And when they when they stopped using it, I went, everything sounds shit and horrible and dull. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? Because because of the you know it's just, it's all a matter of uh, association, but but I mean this, this track it's such a perfect uh, melodical journey and. And I, I mean, I can only go back to just remembering, you know, being in bed, sort of probably one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning with headphones on. And as it builds, and I mean, the similar feeling to how I get when I, when I listen to, say, War of the Worlds or, or Kevin Gilbert's Shaming of the True. And it's, and it's just such a excitement. And when Phil comes in with that vocal with, you know, and it's the first time he sings it guide vocal, he's, he's sad. And the, the second time he sings it, He's pissed off. Yes, and it's, yeah. <laughs> Take my jars and, and and it's and then it goes into that the lead Tony's lead, and I don't know. It's it's well, it's very sad. I, I guess sad's not the word really. So it's more more poignant. But um, and then yeah, and then we go belting into the end sequence again. So it's just it's, it's a, a really well. I hate to say the word, but a roller coaster. Yeah, it, it is. Brings, yeah. It brings it full circle in a lot of ways. The album ends the way it began. So. There's also a lovely bit in it, which um, again uh, shows exactly ex- uh, exactly how egalitarian they had become. Whereas there's he uses the uh, trouble everyday riff, the diddle 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 diddle, to come back into um, the full bore sure. drumming. But there's no bass. Right, it's right. just him and a guitar. Okay. And and then the the uh, a little bit of keyboard comes in, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then everything kicks in. Right, right, yeah. And that's the bit. That's the real. Yeah. Uh, the and, and, and they played that part. They played that part in two thousand seven, which it was just like, oh, I love this bit. You know, just... when when yeah, when Mike's doing that. Yeah. yeah. And that's like whoa, and then and then the pedal comes in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are you sure you need any instruments? You just need your mouth, mate. Yeah, that's right. This is the acapella genesis. So. But again, it speaks yeah. to the fact that Rutherford really sort of, yeah. really knocks this out the park. Yeah. Uh, you know, over almost the entire album. Yeah. Well, he had had a tour of playing some lead guitar live, and he did his solo album where he played all the guitar on that. And so I think that he was more comfortable being the guitarist in this. And also, he's always been a solid bass player, a fantastic bass player, bigger than solid. As Simon said, it's fucking awesome. Yes. <laughs> Can we all agree that it is fucking awesome? Yeah. All right. Concur. And there are two bonus tracks on this album, two B-sides. Uh, let's talk about Open Door first. I see a smiling face by the open door. There's the morning light shining in your head and in your eyes. And just a little way behind that smile of yours, I see another one. Oh, so far away If only for one second I could hold you close to me When the master calls 
that Simon was surprised about Man of Our Times, I have to admit, Open Door really surprised me upon listening to this stuff again. I always thought, okay, it's a good song, and you know, I listened to Duke several times, the whole album to get ready. I probably listened to Open Door a few more extra times wow. than that. Something about this song, I don't know, you know, it's at different times, it'll grab you, but it's, I think it's one of Brotherford's finest ballads. It's, it has two couple different meanings. At one point, I, I first read it and oh the guy's being called off to war the master is called mm-hmm. again um, he's leaving and the second time i i interpreted it, i thought well maybe he's dying mm. and the master is some greater thing that he's being called back and he's not going to see her smiling face against the open door um i'm thinking maybe this didn't include it because it was too similar to alone tonight right. the openings are very similar but i just I just got a whole new appreciation for this song. I agree a hundred percent. I was, I was, I was. If anything, I was dismissive of this song, and I was just like, Ugh, "Open door, so boring." <laughs> and but then, really listening to it, I was like, "Wait a second. I was like, this is this is more of a story than I thought it was." Right. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is really good." Maybe even I would have switched out alone tonight for this, but. I'm not sure. I think I think they made the right choice, but I was like, it's close to me now, whereas it wasn't before. I right. I thought Open Door was like oh, that's like bottom of the barrel. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, it's it's an inappropriate place in the barrel. And I could yeah. totally hear this being done with an orchestra. <laughs> and there's a line after the second time when he says, "And the master calls again for me." There's nothing I can say or I can do. If that keyboard, so you know, alone keyboard could have been an oboe, you could definitely hear mm-hmm. it. As, mm. as like a full orchestra and just like really and when it gets to the last chorus the strings yeah. getting loud and just, just really hitting home yeah I agree it's a great Rutherford song mm-hmm. among all of the songs he, he all the pieces he did just on his own like Alone Tonight or Your Own Special Way this one is maybe the best one ever mm. I think it's a, a hidden gem yeah. it was a, a hidden, hidden gem, gem. Yeah, like most of their B-sides, which could easily have been A-sides, um, you know, it's like a cow, especially this period. I feel like between Duke and Invisible Touch, mm-hmm. their B-sides were solid. Like, yeah. they had some really strong, I mean, before then there were some really good ones, even yeah. in the Gabriel era, but they were kind of so hit or miss. Was, yeah. The quality was yeah. up and down, but there was like a solid chunk yeah. of good, you know, material. and just speaks to how, like, prolific they were and how they were yeah. gelling as a three-piece so yeah. well. Uh, as I say, I can't say much about this one because I only really came to it through through archives. I didn't know of it before then. But but all, but all I mean, it's it, again, it's a very poignant number. I'm surprised it's Mike Rutherford actually. Um, I thought it was Tony Banks, but um, it it kind of does what it what it needs to do, and then it leaves you on a sort of cliffhanger, and it's like, what happens next, or or, or is or is there's something very final about it which is in itself is quite uh, quite sad and um, I, know, I, I do like it I really like it but I don't know it as well as 
which uh, which which just out of interest, does anybody know what what it it featured? It featured as a B side to what single? Um, I had it around before. I think it was Misunderstanding. Duchess. Yeah. Oh, okay. Duchess. Duchess? How is it beside, beside of Duchess. Okay, B side of Duchess. Okay. So. Yeah, which I could definitely picture Andrea Bocelli singing it with a big orchestra. Right. Okay. And I know that sounds great. But now we have 80-minute CDs and then bonus CDs and bonus tracks. and bonus. It's like we don't, you know, then it's like we, we have these tracks that we can't include. Now it's we'll include everything, even though it's shite. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because we have the space. Not, not, yeah. This is something which I think we, we spoke of, actually, in the We Can't Dance uh, episode where, where of that whole business about CD bloat, yeah, which, sure. which wasn't really a, an issue at this point in their career. Yeah, I think Duke's as long as it needs to be. Yeah. Like, like yeah. It, was, it was good having these off. And as I was saying that, I know it sounds crazy to think maybe this song could be sung by Andrea Bocelli with an orchestra, but it's definitely not as crazy as going to his website and getting the email of their contact management and then sending them a YouTube link and saying this would be a great song. That, <laughs> that would be just too crazy. Yeah. No, no one would ever do that. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> I'm sure nobody's done that. No, either, no, so. no, no, not at this table. Nope. Right. No, no. no. Well, the the next track is a Tony song called "Evidence of Autumn." I've always kind of thought of this as an appendix to the Duke Suite. Because okay. Thank it, you. Because, yeah, yeah, it, because it has the first line of the song is the girl from all those songs who made everything feel right. And I'm like, well, is that Duchess? Is that a connection here that was this meant to be kind of part of that bigger picture? Um, I don't know. I've never seen Tony talk about this song, so I don't know if there's was a literal planned connection there. But but I've, it makes me feel that way, and I guess Tom, you also. <laughs> yeah. I probably went a little bit further. My 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 theory, which is true, is that, <laughs> is that this is that this is Duchess from the fans' perspective. Okay. This is the same story about a girl rising, mm-hmm. and this is his infatuation with her. Perhaps he meets her, and then the evidence of autumn, the autumn in her okay. career. The autumn and his love for her, and right. maybe that's waning as well. Um, as I said, the girl from all those songs, and they have kind of similar hanging lines. And all the people cried, "You're the one we waited for." Oh, and everybody told you you're all so lucky. They all just seem like very little things. Um, one thing which, and I think it's a great track. The one that 
thing which is a little odd is like there's that one instrumental part which is kind of mean Virgil-ish. Ellie said that it was. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, one for the vine here and there, and the yeah. instrumental yeah. beats and the arrangements. Yeah. And the, yeah, it's a great song. I love it. Yeah. I really like it. And I think the the debate about this song tends to be heat haze or evidence of autumn. Like, could they? Could this have replaced heat haze? Whatever. And I I come down on. I'm happy heat haze is on the album. Yeah, as much as strong. I love this song, yes. you know, it's I wouldn't want it to replace anything else on the album. So. I've always felt that this this track sounded like something that could have been off, and then there were three. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just feel there's a a darkness to this track which sets it apart from the Duke songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I think it's a great song, I really yeah. like this song. Um, but as I said, for some strange reason, it just does not quite fit. And that maybe that might be the reason why it wasn't included on the sure. album. Do you remember from the old paper late days, or maybe it was the early forum, there was a big debate about one of the lyrics on these songs? About it being maybe about suicide? or about Right, because being... I think it, the line is, maybe dawn is breaking as you turn to find her gone. And yeah. I think a lot of people thought it was, as you turn to find the gun. Oh, really? <laughs> see, see, but I, I... Which makes it darker in a whole different way. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, there is an also a line there about the note being left. And that oh, some people right. thought that was a suicide note. And I'm like, no, I, th- I read that as just, you wake up, she's gone, and left a note for to you. Dear John. Left yeah, 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 that's how I interpret it. I, I, it's, I think, you know, jumping to suicide is a little bit too melodrama, but it's... It's, it's a fan be. thing to do. Yeah, well, that's, 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 why I, that's why I don't agree with it, I think, <laughs> because it seems to be the easiest thing. And sometimes, you know, people do this in TV shows, too, where it's like, we need some drama. Kill somebody. Yeah. Yes. It's like there's other ways to have drama in life than, you know, just jumping to death. And so, yeah, I, I don't agree with that. But I see why people might think that. So, What do you think, Peter? I hate to be sort of non-committal, putting a downer on things because I'm the last one to talk about it. But the, the, the first time I heard it, I heard the dark sort of piano chorus. I thought, "Well, oh, that sounds interesting." And then as soon as the chorus kicked in, I thought, "It's he Hayes." Ah, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's in the tempo, in the the bass line. Michael's it's like he's got that kind of singing bass to it. He's got it's the vocal. It's the it's the it just the drums. It, it just seems like. Uh, he did two songs that were very similar yeah. and decided to ditch one. And he, yeah. and obviously it's so hard to say because I've heard Heat Haze all my life and I've only heard that one in the last few years. But I've got to say, I think Heat Haze was was the best one to, to keep. I, I, I think I, like, I agree. I, I, like, I like this song, but I'm Heat Haze is the better track of the two of them. I was going to say, and then there were three. It's the same one there. Like, um, I always think Nemo <laughs> sounds very similar to the day. Whatever it's called, uh, I can't remember what it's called. And there's there's a couple of songs, and then there were three on the on the B sides. And I think, yeah, to me it just sounds like earlier versions of what you later finished off. And yeah. not, that, I mean, they're still great songs. I mean, you know, perish perish the thought I would ever say a Genesis song was was less than brilliant, but <laughs> but they're, they're, to me they are kind of earlier versions or, or or variations. You know, I think there's a there the other thing I was going to say is that I, I if I remember correctly, Mike was talking about. Um, uh, an interview that he saw with uh, it might have been Tony about sometimes songs remain you know in the in the background but still alive because 
there are certain sections which the band really liked. Mm. And while the entire song didn't work, that section still did something for them. Right, like they... Well, stagnation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, or they think that, you know, oh, we'll work on this, maybe it can be fixed in the mix, or maybe something will come out with that. And, you know, it's... Certain songs do... You know, until you get to that final stage, Heat Haze and Evidence of Autumn may have been kind of tied in the recording process, and then once they finish it, they say... Yeah, they're like, oh, Heat Haze has the better vocal performance, or the better, you know, better just mix in general. It kind of joins there. So, yeah, I think they made the right choice with this. So, Although one small fact is that it, when Three Sides Live came out, they released Evidence of Autumn as a single, and it cracked the top ten in Poland. <laughs> really? Wait, 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 are you serious? Yes. Well done, Poland. Yeah. yeah. Spot right, on. Right behind Sex Farm. <laughs> <laughs> it was about the same era, so, yeah. But, uh, well, that's great. So, well, we're now, what we do now, is, uh, Peter, is that we each talk about what our favorite track on the album is. And then Tom will reveal, and then Tom will reveal his poll. His poll, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure this is your first time here, so this may be a little bit shocking when he reveals his poll to you. But It's time to enjoy Tom's poll. Yes. yes. But let's first talk about our own favorite track. Peter, why don't you go first and tell us what your favorite do track is? I totally haven't considered this. Um, <laughs> Give us uh, your gut, your gut reaction here. Diddly do, diddly do, cul-de-sac. All right. Shall I, shall I, shall I elaborate? Ah, sure. Yeah. Why not? No, no. I said it all before, didn't I? It's just, no. I just, I think it's a brilliant track. It could have been a, a, a classic if Gabriel had done it, and I think it, you know, it's. It just proves that, you know, again, I, I keep saying people say, which makes me sound like I'm building a straw man sort of thing. <laughs> but, but they do say. That, the word you know, on the street is that. that they do, but, but, but some people do say that, you know, Gabriel left and they lost the best lyricist and the best this and the best that. I'm like, not really, not necessarily. I mean, and, and that's a Tony Banks creation. And I just think it's absolutely fab. Right. It's not. It's not better or worse. It's different when no, Phil yeah. did things. And, yeah. and, and when people say that, they don't always know which bits Gabriel wrote and which bits, you know, back in the day because they wrote together and apart. And and there you go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Ellie, what's your Ellie? What is your <laughs> band? Thank you, Peter. Well, mine is uh, Duke's Travel slash Duke's End. Very yes, good. I love the instrumental. The you know the guide vocals, uh, the lyrics at the end. So yeah. Amazing. Mr. Simon? It's tough. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. This uh, is a tough that's one. That's a song? Oh, wait. That was a seaside. Yeah. It's Man of Our Times for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it would be Duchess. Oh, mm. It is, to me, that's a genesis. It's Genesis. It's not Phil, Mike, and Tony playing. That's Genesis. And it... Kind of it goes back to my can you tell in the coastliners and no reply at all comments I've made in the past where you just don't know where they start and end with mm-hmm. the three of them and this song is just a beautiful execution of the three of them working together so that's absolutely my favorite song on the album. Fantastic. For me, behind the lines, no question. For the same reasons that Stacy loves Duchess. Hmm. Awesome. You know, I I think I voted for Dude's Travels in the poll. Um, today I'm gonna say, please don't ask. Aww. You know, you know, because, all, because it changes. All, these things can change on a daily basis. So today it's that track. 
all the tracks all the tracks you've all said they're my favorites too yes <laughs> so it's now, hard to pick one from this it is as 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 phil would say it is an embarrassment of riches it is and I agree 100% with him. And if you ask me tomorrow what my favorite track is, I might say something else. Why might? Yeah, me too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, Tom, let's uh, get this pull out on the table and see how it measures up. The big reveal. Tom shows you his poll. Well, the, the, the poll here, it, it has some uh, surprises and some not surprises. The first track, which wasn't really close... Duke's Travels, twenty six percent of the vote, and I'm going to include Duke's End, even though we had, because yeah. Duke's End got the least votes, but it I think people consider it one yeah, track. So right. let's say the Duke's Travels, Duke's End was number one. Yeah. Uh, number two, Duchess, twenty two percent. Third place was a tie between Behind the Lines and Heat. Haze. <laughs> <laughs> it still sounds so awkward to my ears. Me too. I can't. I can't. You guys changed Heath my Haze life. Heath doesn't sound awkward. Heath Haze. Heath Haze. Still calling it that. <laughs> yeah. Those right. behind the lines and Heath Haze both got thirteen percent. <laughs> All right. Uh, fourth place, Man of Our Times, six percent. Right. Fifth place was thank a t- you six percent. <laughs> fifth place at five percent was a tie again. Turn on again and cul de sac. All right. Sixth place was another tie at four per- at 3%, Guide, Vocal, and Misunderstanding. Okay. And the last two songs were Please Don't Ask at 2%, which I was kind of surprised, but there's so many, yeah, everything is good on this album. It's an embarrassment of riches. Right, so. and the, the last, the least votes went to what they thought was going to be the obvious single, Alone Tonight. Right. <laughs> which is probably why it wasn't the obvious, yes. and it didn't end up being the single, so... Well, this is this has been fascinating. Any any final thoughts from the tabletop about this album? If I'm being really truthful, this album is the the album that made me and keeps me a Genesis fan. Mm-hmm. You can always go back to it. It's probably the one that I would give to people who might know a couple hits and want to know more about it. I'd probably give them Duke from yeah. the Phil years and say. Sure. Yes, I agree with. I can agree with that. You know, instead of maybe shapes or even invisible touch, I would say, yeah, listen to Duke. Yeah, very good. Peter, good what list. do you think? Any final thoughts on Duke? Just uh, it's, uh, it's kind of been said before, but um, I mean, it was a transition, and Abercab is a definite shift, and I can t- really I can sympathise with why some people don't don't aren't into it, but for me, Duke just has everything. Yeah, excellent. I, I agree. I think that this was, you know, the, the summation of their career to this point, and they needed a turning point at this point to keep moving forward, to keep progressing in their own ways. So not necessarily being prod, but being true to themselves as musicians. And I think that they had nothing to be ashamed of on this album. It was fantastic. So, uh, Peter, why don't you tell us what you're working on next, if you have anything coming up, coming out? Where are you going uh, from here? Well, I, I, uh, I'm rehearsing weekly uh, with the Tiger Moth Tales and Red Bazaar band, which are the same band. Uh, but <laughs> I, won't get, I won't bore you with that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we're doing gigs together, so we'll be doing Red Bazaar and Tiger Moth Tales stuff. I'm supposed to be writing a new album, but Excellent. Uh, when, when that will happen, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the process of, of, of uh, changing studios, so I'm, like, I'm, I'm kind of 
ripping everything out and starting again. So it could be some time. And I don't know, apart from that, I'm just doing my radio show and, you know, I'm, I'm working with people. I've worked with uh, Colin Tench from Corverstone and uh, there's a couple of other things in the pipeline and I'm just feeling incredibly lucky um, to have stumbled on this community. Excellent. I had one other question, which was, how was your tour with Camel? Oh, oh yeah, wow! Yes, that was that was brilliant. That was fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know any any camel at all until they approached me. You know, and I feel like a complete pleb for not doing so. <laughs> but um, you know, and and I love I love so much of what what camel do, and and it was really lovely stuff to play, and the guys are just. You know, they're, they're a bunch of lovely guys, you know, Andy and uh, Colin and Denis, uh, just lovely chaps. And, you know, the, 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 the crowning, well, however you want to put it, glory or ridiculousness or whatever it was, that's, <laughs> I played a, a festival where, you know, Steve Hackett went on before us. And <laughs> that, 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 for whatever reason, obviously, you know, someone's got to go on first. Uh, but that, you know, that kind of blew my mind because every time I've met Steve Hackett, it's been backstage as a creepy stalker fanboy and, I think, and, I, and fr frankly i think if i could see i think he's looking over my shoulder going uh security uh, could you could you could you yeah <laughs> so to just to, to, to kind of i mean i didn't i didn't see him in tokyo i didn't, I didn't actually see him but but to just to, to share the stage as it were uh and to play with camel who are just you know obviously and that, that 70s prog icons and well and still iconic today so it was uh, a fantastic experience and uh, i hope that we'll do it again soon Excellent. well thank you again for being with us peter we hope to have you on again at some point maybe we'll just do kind of a conversation with you next time versus doing yeah, an, an album because I, I i got a feeling that my contribution has probably put an extra hour on the show of me babbling but it has been it has been a real pleasure to talk to you uh to you guys all of you and well it's just nice to talk to like-minded people but especially about something which we're all so passionate about so you know thank you for having me great well thank you peter this is mike signing off this is ellie this is simon this is stacy this is tom and we thank you for listening and we'll see you next time Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.